Boom! Live on Rumble, Kick, and Odyssey with me today, the great Scott Horton, Libertarian Institute, Antiwar.com, former editor for Justin Romando, author of several books, one that he's been writing for 58 years. <laughs> we uh, talked to actually last year, we did an interview about your book that was coming out eventually. Yeah. Um, it's like a thousand pages. Have you narrowed it down a little bit? No, I've narrowed it uh, up. It is um, twelve hundred pages now, um, and I I still have some work to do. I'm pretty pleased, you know. Like if I compare, say, my Bosnia Kosovo chapters with Bosnia Kosovo books that I'm reading, I'm like, hey, I did a pretty good job here. Like they, I'm learning some things and filling in some things. But what I had already done, like I think, measures up pretty well to. Um, some of the best stuff that I'm reading about the same subjects too, more or less. So I think people like it whenever it's finally done, if it's ever done. Have you called uh, George R. R. Martin? <laughs> we should have like some kind of promotion together or something like that. Right. It's like, you, yeah, him and Hollow Knight. I actually hope that at some point we could do events together where Gareth does the first cold war and then I do the new one, you know, something like that. I think he might be your most, frequently reoccurring guests oh absolutely i've interviewed him 325 times something like that i don't know and by far more than anyone else yeah gareth borders yeah. man and he talks a little bit about what we're going to get into today too he's especially mm -hmm. good on saying it wasn't about oil but this one i saw on antiwar.com usa keeps fighting for iran uh not on purpose i think <laughs> just out of just out of sheer stupidity. Um, but let's walk through it. Because right now they're threatening Iran. They're bombing Yemen. Uh, yep. There was a huge terrorist attack in Iran not too long ago, possibly by MEK. Over 200 killed. And then Blukistani terrorists in the eastern side of Iran or the border of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. uh, long sponsored by the U.S., by the way. And there seems to be no shortage of rhetoric from the uh the lindsey graham you know cotton type crowd bomb iran and then of course oh, i don't have the mug with me i usually have a mug a coffee mug of john mccain in hell but i think it's being washed but he did the bomb 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 iran thing <laughs> as well the ghost of john mccain is still with us yeah pretty so. but how did they get into this mess i mean some of the rhetoric about and this was rhetoric and it's hard to know if they're really that stupid or they just wanted an excuse to you know let's get this one first and this one later but about uh iran was that we needed to go into iraq and then we needed to go into syria and that mm -hmm. this would have positive reverberations netanyahu said that he guaranteed what a success story this would be and if only if only we could topple Saddam, and then that would be, that's what'll do it. Well, oh, that messed up. Now the Shia control Iraq. Uh, well, now we need to go after Assad, and they keep making these mistakes. So if you can take us to the timeline, who all is responsible for this other than Richard Pearl? Uh, and how did they get into this? Is there a way on this program, Ryan, that I can? Oh, yeah, this looks right. Let me show you something here real quick, if I can. Uh... Get this to work right can i do you want to show uh um oh yeah i want to show you um yeah here we go let's see uh shit is that working can you see that i can pull it up yeah here we go there we go nice oh, good. 
Hey, nice. I did something. We can do. Yeah, I didn't know we could do this either. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's look at this for a minute. I had a buddy of mine uh, make this for me. And essentially what we see here is just the American slash Sunni slash Israeli axis of power in the Middle East versus the Iranian-led Shiite alliance there. Okay, so Turkey is not Arab, but is a Sunni country. Egypt and and the rest of these are all Sunni Arab uh, monarchies there in the Gulf. And go ahead and throw in Jordan and Kuwait in that. And they do have differences between them, of course. But essentially, this is the American-dominated axis of power in the Middle East. In darker green, you have Iran. Now, Iraq, as you just said, the 2003 war shifted Iraq from the light green to the dark green column here, from the American Sunni-dominated side to the Iranian side. And then Syria is dominated by the Alawites, which is sort of a break off of the Shiites, but very closely related to them and in alliance with them. And most importantly, for our purposes here, in alliance with Iran and mm. in alliance with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And you can see their tiny little Lebanon north of Israel there. The south of Lebanon is sort of a mini state. And I guess the east of Lebanon there, a part of the east, is sort of a mini state um, run by Hezbollah, which is this fundamentalist Shiite group that. They sort of are Iran's 51st state in a way, uh, you could say. And so go back to, well, let's just go back to 1979, okay? America used to have a friendly government in Iran that fell. And the American government knew that the government in Iran was going to fall and that they couldn't do anything about it because the Shah, the dictator himself, had cancer and was a dead man. And so... The CIA and the State Department said, you know what, let's go ahead and tell our friends the French to send the Ayatollah Khomeini home to Iran to inherit the revolution, which had been rising up to overthrow the American-backed dictatorship there. Because after all, we know the Ayatollah. He's an old friend of ours. We know him from 1953 when his group helped us agitate to help destabilize, to overthrow the Prime Minister Mossadegh to reinstall the Shah back in the last coup. So Operation Ajax, Kermit Roosevelt. Yeah. Right. So, and I think most people know the story. I guess I should have gone back to 53. When I say 79, folks, I mean 53. When the U.S. government overthrew the government of Iran, uh, reinstalled the dictator, the Shah Reza Pahlavi, and kept him in power for 26 years. Then he fell in, uh, and his regime fell in 79. But as I say, the CIA and state told Jimmy Carter, we better go ahead and let the Ayatollah come to power. We think we can deal with him and it'll be fine. And I really, for people who are really interested in this stuff, I urge you to read Treacherous Alliance by Trita Parsi. And who knows how many great books there are about Iran, Iraq, America, and Israel and all of this stuff. But that book just must be the best of them all. Um, and certainly the best that I've read about all of this mess. And it's told from the point of view of the highest level strategists. There's never mind this news cycle stuff. It's mm -hmm. all told from the point of view of the rulers up on the various Mount Olympuses here in Iran, in Israel, and the United States. And then, of course, throughout the whole story, the poor Iraqis are stuck in the middle and are, you know, played back and forth as the balance between these other powers. And so... The way that if people think back to 1979, people think immediately of the hostage crisis 
and the riots and burning American flags and the great Satan and death to America and all this, as anyone could tell you, they hate us. Those Iranians, man, they hate us. Well, what had happened, in fact, was, as I said, America supported the revolution. They didn't have much of a choice to, and they decided to throw in their lot with the revolution, which was in February of 1979. It had started in the end of 78. And it was really accomplished by February of 79. But it was 10 months later, the end of November was when the riot broke out and the hostages were seized. The whole year long, America had been cozying up to and trying to get along with the Ayatollah. In fact, passing him information, warning him about threats from the Soviet Union. As you remember, the Carter Doctrine was announced to warn the Soviets that even though we're not necessarily pals with Iran right now, we will fight you if you try to invade Iran and conquer Iran and therefore dominate the Gulf. We consider the Persian Gulf an American lake and we will fight for it like it's an American lake. So don't even try it, Soviet Union. That was the big worry at the time. And so they were warning the Ayatollah of the Soviets' intentions and capabilities and so forth throughout that year. Also, I'm sorry, Rai, you may know off the top of your head better than me uh, which month it was in 79 that Saddam Hussein did his bloody coup d'etat and overthrew his predecessor, Abu Bakr, I believe was his name, and became the dictator. That was no popular revolution. That was a bloody putsch from inside the government. The number two guy uh, took over from the old guy. And America was warning Iran about Saddam Hussein's intentions as well. But then what happened was David Rockefeller, the chairman of the Chase Manhattan Bank and the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and an extremely powerful, the founder of the Trilateral Commission, so for an extremely powerful wheeler and dealer, as people know, or they should know, in the history of the 20th century. Well, he called Jimmy Carter and essentially convinced him to allow the Shah to come into the United States for cancer treatment. And this was taken in Iran, it was interpreted to mean that America was going to, because I don't think they knew he was dying like and was a dead man no matter what. So the idea was America was going to save his life and reinstall him in power there. And so that was what caused the riot and the seizing of the hostages at the embassy because the last coup had been plotted from the American embassy. Pardon me. And um, so I'm not justifying it, but I'm- they had to send Muhammad Ali to get him back. Is that what happened there? Well, he ended up going to Iraq too, but like he went through the a boxer. Like here's a famous Muslim, one that we threw in jail and hated and and persecuted, yeah, for being yeah. the greatest and talking too much smack. Um, man, you know what, Ryan? I don't even know the Muhammad Ali part of that at all, dude. I don't need to read about that. It's uh, well, he talked to Saddam too. Like it's uh, yeah, it's a weird thing because that seems like uh sort of a fun story that everyone would know yeah seriously they don't <laughs> well but look so for our purposes here like no matter how old you are whether you live through any of this or you're maybe a young guy trying to catch up or whatever you know or maybe you're bad on this until recently and you're trying to figure it out 79 is just this pivotal foundational year for american foreign policy people think of jimmy carter as so ineffectual which i guess is one way to put it but it's also true that he was extraordinarily reckless, and he really set us on the path of so much of our intervention that we've dealt with ever since then. Because, see, part of the reaction to the hostage crisis was then, as I just mentioned, the announcement of the Carter Doctrine. 
1980, and that included not just the threat to the Soviets that they better not invade Iran, but also a new commitment to build up American forces in the Gulf, in Saudi Arabia, and in other countries, I believe in Bahrain and Qatar, that was where that really got started at that time. And at the same time, or you know, just after the State of the Union where that policy was announced, was, in Jim, was when Jimmy Carter's government gave the green light to Saddam Hussein through King Fahd in, um, or maybe was it Prince Fahd then? Maybe it was already, yeah, I think it was, it was Prince Fahd then. I forgot. Anyway, whatever. Um, I, I forget if he was crown prince or, or king by then, Ryan, sorry. But anyway, it was Fahd who later told Alexander Haig, who was secretary of state under Ronald Reagan, that, yeah, Jimmy Carter told me to tell Saddam Hussein to go ahead and invade. And Robert Perry found the record of that. So now... Look at so, the map. Similar, again. yeah. Later to 91, where they told them that about Kuwait. Yeah, exactly right. So in this case, though, as as most people know, Jimmy Carter and then Ronald Reagan continued to back Saddam Hussein throughout the 1980s. And even I remember that from being on the news when I was a kid, that it was blatant that America was on Iraq's side in this thing. Um, and now, so go back to the map, everybody, and look. And right around... This thing, by the way, is an eight-year-long war between Iran and Iraq. Yeah, through the entire 1980s now. So right around, this is not exactly right, but say on that map, right around where the queue is, is Baghdad. Now, mm -hmm. from east of there and south of there, all that territory is predominantly Shiite, Arab, okay? They are 60% of the population of Iraq, the other 20% are Sunni Arabs in the West, and the other 20% are the Kurdish, uh, who are Sunnis, but not Arabs. They're a different ethnicity who live in the North. But the Shiite Arabs in Iraq are the supermajority. So this is the answer to the question of why Saddam Hussein invaded Iran. Saddam Hussein was afraid that the Iranian Shiite revolution, this fundamentalist religious revolution that had seized state power, would then work its way into Iraq and would be a threat to his regime. And in fact, there were some Iraqi Shiites who left Iraq to go to Iran to join the revolution. And especially when Saddam Hussein's solution to this problem was to conscript all those Shiites and send them to war in Iran, many of them switched sides. And either from the POW camps or they just outright turned coat and, cho and chose Iran's side in the war. In other words, they chose their religious sect over their national sect as Iraqis or their ethnic sect as Arabs and said, what's more important is that they're Shiites and they're aligned with this new revolution. That was what Saddam Hussein was worried about. So they fight, as you said, an eight-year war. Basically, throughout the entire Reagan administration, the United States backed Iraq. Israel, by the way, this whole time was backing Iran. And that's why when we talk about, say, for example, the aberration, really, in the Reagan years, the Iran-Contra scandal, where the Americans were selling weapons to the Ayatollah in Iran, they were using Israel as the cutout to do it. You guys sell them some of your tow missiles, and then we'll give you some new ones. This kind of a game. That was how they were playing it. Well, how were they doing that? Because Israel and Iran kept their relationship after the revolution. And in fact, I, I think you probably know this better than me, but we're publishing a book about this, well, that has a big part about this at the Institute soon. 
uh, by Gary Vogler that Mark Rich and his company set up a deal with this secret pipeline from the Gulf of Akuba. Are you guys able to see my my cursor on there? This little Gulf of Akuba, if you're looking at Suez, it's the one to the right there. Um, and they had a secret pipeline here that that ran to Israel. And so the Iranians were shipping the oil by sea to the Gulf and then from there dumping it into this pipeline to Israel. And they kept that going um, throughout the 1980s. And in fact, until about 1995, um, after Yitzhak Rabin, it really two years after Yitzhak Rabin had really changed the policy and turned on Iran, um, which remind me to get back to that in one second. But first, we got to do Iraq War One. Well, let's just note before you get into that, I'll explain to the audience something you you know maybe left out. So, in 1973, you have the Yom Kippur War, uh, which was not good for Israel whatsoever. Um, they lost a little bit of the Golan Heights. It was um, sort of the revenge after the the Six Day War that Israel started preemptively. But in result of uh, America aiding Israel in Yom Kippur in 73, there was the OPEC oil weapon that caused all these giant gas lines of the United States. They knew this is mostly from Sunni. This is from Saudi Arabia and a lot of Sunni states. Mm -hmm. And so this is another motivation for Israel trying to pit Sunni and Shia against each other and, and aiding Iran is this was a huge threat. This was something that they couldn't challenge the U.S., in a general economy or militarily, but they could withhold gas. And they decided that they needed to break up this uh, OPEC cartel. And this was formulated in 76 uh, to start bringing Saudi Arabia in and things like the Safari Club and other things uh, to break up because that's who has the largest oil reserves was Saudi Arabia. Number two was Iraq. Mm -hmm. Right. So... And we'll get back to the oil and Israel's interest in the oil here in a moment. All this is just foreshadowing for the rest of the Mark story. Rich has this commodity right. company's Glencore, which is just doing evil all over the world. And he would end up on Interpol's most wanted list for one of the most minor things he did, which is tax evasion. But um, his criminal list and him and Pink is Green, his partner, should be longer than the list that Santa reads each year. Uh, but he isn't known for that. And this guy would help finance um, Boris Borzovsky and some of the Russian oligarchs. He's good friends with Rupert Murdoch. He was just a who's who. And he even, some of the money from Rich would end up with Wexner and Epstein and all those guys. We know what they did. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, well, that's a different tangent, but hold that thought. Because Clinton so pardons Rich and, and Green, you know, and we now yeah. know why, because he's riding around with Epstein. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, Bill Clinton, for people who don't remember or were too young or something, Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich on his last day in office, which was really a big scandal. But then it was like, oh, well, he's gone. So what are you going to do? I don't know. But well, Denise Rich helped finance Hillary Clinton's Senate campaign, too. But yeah, he's on the oh, right. he's on the client list. OK, you know, I think I had known that at one point, actually. Um, I'm sure you've said it before. It was New Square, New York. There was a scandal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She was selling furniture and book, selling autographed books for $900 and think like whatever the Clintons. <laughs> um, okay. So before we get to the Clintons, still HW Bush now, HW Bush 
I'm going to say virtually or essentially baited Iraq into invading Kuwait. I'm really not convinced that the whole thing was a deliberate like red flag for a dumb bull. It could have been. I think also, I mean, from my research, I've read a bunch of different books about all this as best as I could when I was researching for enough already. And it really does seem to me like you had too many, too many different guys working at too many different departments sending too many different mixed signals. So I think the way it was, was like DIA and CIA or no CIA and, and I forget who CIA and CENTCOM maybe. We're telling the Kuwaitis, you don't have to take this guff from Saddam Hussein. Tell him to get bent. What's he going to do about it? And then the State Department is telling Saddam Hussein, you don't have to take that crap from them. They're overproducing from your shared oil wells and, and they're being unreasonable in their demands and calling in their loans. And, and they were being very insulting too. Oh, you don't want to pay back your loans? Maybe you just send us your war widows. And we'll just, we'll just take your payment that way. Like imagine somebody talking that way about America's gold star moms and, and that kind of thing. And gold star widows that people take that kind of thing really, you know, very seriously as an insult, as far as an insult can go. That's as Yeah, Rockwood is accusing Kuwait of angle drilling and taking their yeah. oil. And this is very important to them after the Iran-Iraq war. The Iraq economy is, 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 is been savaged and uh so they and wanted their oil like and they're right. like oh we yeah. had this long war with iran that u.s encouraged and now kuwait decides to call in all the loans and they're stealing the oil that we could use to help pay it off and then right. saying these kind of insults you know and agreeing to meet and then not showing up and this kind of deal. So this is when, and you could read all about this in the April Glaspie memo, the Saddam Hussein, you know, the Iraqis version is in the New York Times. The State Department's version is at wikileaks.org. Finally, now, thanks to Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange, we have that. And, you know, you can read it for yourself where that's the complaint. And it's not just the Kuwaitis, but I believe the UAE and Saudi are calling in their loans too. And they're all being real jerks about it. And Hussein is fed up. And so the State Department is telling them, you don't have to take that. James Baker is saying, go ahead and break their knees. That's the game. You know, that's how you do it. They're, they're overproducing from shared oil fields. Then in West Texas rules, that's violence. We'll fix your wagon real quick, boy, and you're going to knock that off. That's how they play the game. But then Wolfowitz at the Defense Department is freaking out. And Wolfowitz at the Defense Department convinces President Bush to send a letter to Saddam Hussein saying, hey, we really wish you wouldn't do this. But then they thought, actually, that was too weasel worded. And he might even read that as a flashing yellow light. Let's send him another more strongly worded letter. And then it was too late. He's already rolling in. And I don't think that that's just the limited hangout, Ryan. I really think my best understanding is that you just have that's from earlier. That's from 83. And at that meeting, by the way, this is where Rumsfeld is trying to convince Hussein to build a pipeline to the port of Akuba for, again, for Israel's interests there. Uh, it was a major part of that meeting while he's also promising to give him money and help him buy chemical weapons and, and whatever the rest. No, agricultural uh, weapons, Scott. Agricultural, yeah, agricultural <laughs> pesticides. <laughs> That's right. Um, so he can buy all the chemical weapons from our allies in Europe. Um, but so in then in 91... Uh, Essentially, as I say, essentially, ultimately, figuratively, they baited the trap and tricked him into invading Kuwait. And then once he did, 
Actually, at first, Bush Sr. didn't give a damn. And neither did Colin Powell and the entire National Security Council decided they weren't going to do anything. They were going to tell Saddam Hussein, you better not invade uh, Saudi Arabia or then you'll make us angry. And that was what they said. That was their original response. Because again, Baker had told him, go ahead, see if I care. He wasn't supposed to take the whole country. He was supposed to just take the northern oil fields. And Glaspie herself said that to the New York Times. Geez, we didn't think he's going to take the whole country. And you can read that in the Times. Um, so, but then but what happened? By the way, well, while this is happening, the U.S. and Israel are getting contraband to Iran. Wait, put that picture back up. Is that? I wonder if that's April Glaspie standing right there. No, maybe not. Anyway, yeah, but next. But well, yeah, and they are most of the aid to Iran is, I think, later in 84, 85. Anyway, through on? Israel, because uh, importantly, Israel kept this relationship. So this whole thing where fundamentalist Islam and the, the mean old Ayatollah Shiite regime in Iran is guaranteed hell bent, no matter what, incorrigible, evil, hell bent on destroying Israel due to religious conviction. Well, that just can't possibly be right because the mean old Ayatollah Khomeini died in 89. We've had the much less radical, you know, I mean, I'm not saying he's a great guy or whatever. He's clearly a cautious guy has been in charge ever since then. The Ayatollah Khomeini is his name. And so the idea that he somehow has this, you know, hell bent, irrational, religiously mandated uh, idea of killing every last Jew in Israel uh, worse than his predecessor makes no sense and just frankly isn't true. It's part of the lie that they spin against him. But so anyway, I'm sorry, I'm making a long story long here, but that was what you wanted, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so after Iraq War One, what happens is George Bush Sr. encourages this Shiite supermajority population of southeastern Iraq, as well as the Kurds in the north, to rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein. And they drop leaflets, and Bush Sr. actually, I had the audio, man, I'm sorry, I don't have it queued up for you here, but actually have the audio of Bush Sr.'s uh, message saying, rise up, now's your chance to get rid of Saddam Hussein. And so they started to do that. But then what happened was the Americans choked. Bush Sr., now, again, for the youngsters or people just getting into this stuff, the Bush senior administration was essentially the Ronald Reagan government's third term. Bush had been his vice president. Cheney at defense was new. He had been in the House. But Baker had been the chief of staff. Colin Powell, who is now the um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had been the national security advisor. Um, and much of the rest of the staff were all holdovers from the Reagan years. So these were literally the same men. Cheney's on the Tower Commission to be the head investigator to Iran-Contra. I'm sorry, I missed the first part of that. Dick Cheney, Dick Cheney had, what well, ends up becoming Rumsfeld's job. He's head of the DOD, but he ended up being the co-chairman of the Tower Commission for Iran-Contra is oh. Lee Hamilton and Dick Cheney. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that was earlier, right? And, and he, was the he was the one who found that Vice President Bush can do whatever he wants. He's the vice president. Nobody can stop him. And right? then he was, becomes vice president for, yeah, Bush W, yeah. the lesser. <laughs> yeah. Um, and which is, you know, I think, yeah, so that had been, 
I think that had been still and, and even finished in the Reagan years because I think that was how he got his job as defense secretary was for like, hey, thanks for the great job you did there in the house there, Dick, you know? Right, um, he, he gets rewarded essentially. And there's that infamous exchange between him and Bush Sr. saying, why didn't you finish the job and take out Saddam in the first war? And he says, it would have been a quagmire. What did he, he explains exactly what ends up happening. Wait, wait hang on though. So hold that thought for a second, because we got to go back to 91 here. Okay, so 91. That's 94. That's 94. So in 1991, after the war was over, because you're right, they didn't, that's important. They forced Iraq out of Kuwait, but they did not march all the way to Baghdad and regime change Saddam Hussein. The UN mandate was to force Iraq out of Kuwait, and then Bush Sr. pretty much stopped. Then, as I say, he encouraged this revolution to rise up, but then he choked. He changed his mind. And that was my point about how these men were all the same guys from the Reagan administration. And that is, they were the very same men who had just spent a decade backing Saddam Hussein, secular Sunni Saddam Hussein, to contain the Shiite Iranian revolution and prevent it from taking over Iraq. Now, they were the very same ones who were importing the Shiite revolution from Iran. It wasn't just the Shiites of Iraq who were rising up. The Shiites of Iraq who had chosen Iran's side 10 years before when the war broke out, when the Iran-Iraq war broke out, they were now coming back across the border to lead the revolution, namely the Bada Brigade, the militia of the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, which was led by the Hakim family, their leader, Abdul Aziz al-Hakim. And these guys were coming across the border to seize power in the revolution. So Brent Scowcroft and James Baker and Colin Powell and Bush Sr. called it off. And they let Saddam Hussein keep his attack helicopters and his tanks and crush the revolution. And killed probably 100,000 people in crushing the uprising. Well, this then became the excuse to stay in Saudi Arabia. Now we have to create these no-fly zones to protect the Shiites of southern Iraq and the Kurds of northern Iraq from the depredations of Saddam Hussein. Now the guy was an evil, brutal dictator and all. However, the insurrection was over. It's not like he was just going to keep killing them all until they were all dead. He was just putting down the insurrection. So it was a hollow excuse to stay. But it was their excuse to stay in Saudi Arabia. And then they decided very quickly, um, still in the Bush senior years, that I guess just because of the embarrassment of the thing, that and, and they had announced this, Bush senior himself and Robert Gates, who at that time was his CIA director, had said, we will never lift the sanctions against Iraq until Saddam Hussein is gone. Now, Bill Clinton comes in. And stupidly said out loud during the campaign that I think that we can bring Iraq back in from the cold. Uh, that's not an exact quote, but essentially we can renormalize relations with our old buddy Saddam. Well, that caused upset. I'm not sure what the opinion was in the Rabin government in Israel at that time, but I know that in Kuwait, they freaked out. And I'm sure you know the story um, better than most people do, of the fake alleged assassination attempt against George Bush Sr. in 1993. Now, 
people talk about this as a matter of course. It's even in the Dave Chappelle skit about Black Bush that he tried to kill my father and all that. Like everybody believes that that's true. And in fact, I was just reading yesterday that Bush Jr. and Jeb Bush both have been quoted as saying how important that assassination attempt against their father was in, in Junior's motivation for going back to Iraq. And the thing is, it's a lie. It never happened. And of course, it was the great Seymour Hersh in the New Yorker magazine who debunked it. And it's called A Case Not Closed. And in fact, if, if, um, if people search uh, Scott Horton Show on Twitter and assassination, it'll come up. And I have screenshots that I took of the JPEG. So what you got to do is you got to do like copy image address and then paste that in there and then click on the magnifying glass and it'll be big enough to read. And you can read the entire thing. I got screenshots of the entire article from the New Yorker archive there for you. And what Hearst shows is that it was just a whiskey smuggling ring that there were no explosives. The whole thing was fake. Um, you know, it was frame, frame up job after the fact. And you won't be surprised, or maybe, you know, it's a nice little, you know, factoid part of the story that the same Kuwaiti official who announced this plot was the very same guy who had been the ambassador to the United States, whose daughter had falsely testified that she had seen Iraqi soldiers take Kuwaiti babies from their incubators and steal the incubators and leave the babies on the cold floor to die. Uh, and coached right. by Hilary Knowlton, I believe, PR firm. Right. And then it was her father was the same guy who put the Bush senior assassination hoax forward in 1993. But that's very important because at that same time, in the spring of 93, the government of Israel under Yitzhak Rabin was pushing Bill Clinton to accept this policy of dual containment. And part of this see how far down this tangent I want to go to get back again. But basically what happened was Rabin had, was abandoning the Israeli long-term strategy that was called the strategy of the periphery. And the strategy of the periphery said, we want to focus on being friends with Turkey, Iran, and Ethiopia in order to divide uh, closer Arab enemies so that Egypt has to keep an eye on their south, Iraq has to keep an eye on their east, Syria has to keep an eye on their north. Does that make sense? To divide all the closer countries to Israel um, by having Israeli friends on their outside. That was called the doctrine of the periphery. Well, Rabin abandoned that and he turned it upside down and he said, no, we want to negotiate with the Arabs and including the Palestinians. And now Rabin's conception of a Palestinian state was not exactly what you would call a state. He called it a state minus, depending on your point of view. You know, I would say it's a hell of a lot better than the situation that they've had since then. If it's a step short of true independence, um, it, still the point is they needed, they were going to negotiate with Arafat and the PLO and, and uh, create a Palestinian state of some kind. And essentially, Rabin needed Iran as a scapegoat to do it. So he, in other words, we're going to make peace with the Palestinians. But in order to shut up all the hawks, he said, look, Iran, and started demonizing Iran. At the same time, this was the end of the Cold War. And as one Israeli strategist told Trita Parsi, 
why does America need Israel if it's not to keep the Soviet Union out or if it's not to destabilize the Soviets' friends in the region and this kind of thing? And the answer was radical Islam, which you'll notice right away does not distinguish between Sunni and Shia at all or who's who at all. It's like this imaginary word. It's like fighting terror, you know, just a blank check to mean whatever you want. And he said, well, it's like the recent bombing. There's um, there's an attack on Tower 22 or maybe oh, I'll wait, 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 right. I, I know I go on too long, but well, I, know, I just I'll just make an analogy like in response to that, they just go bomb Shia militias in Syria and Iraq as if they're all the same. Like, oh, well, that's not even who did the attack. And then you just killed 16 people because they're generally in the same religion or something like. Yeah. Well, and they said then this is new glue for the alliance. Right. So like uh, V for Vendetta, we need them to remember why they need us. Why does America need Israel? Oh, because of the danger of fundamentalist Islam, which, of course, the danger of fundamentalist Muslims attacking America is virtually all generated by our alliance with Israel. So it's it shouldn't be but nuclear. The danger the of fundamentalist oh. Judaism that has been attacking all their neighbors preemptively and dragging yeah, the rest it, into it one be, It should be. Um, you know, new turpentine for the alliance to break that glue, to dissolve that glue. We don't need that bond. They're they're obviously costing <laughs> us uh, far more than we gain from our alliance with them. Yeah, Lacoud anyway, ends so, up assassinating Rabin in '95. But in uh, spring of '93, Rabin is pushing Clinton to adopt this policy of dual containment, and it was actually um, uh, Yitzhak Shamir's former aide, Martin Indyk who then came to work for Bill Clinton and founded the Washington Institute for Near East Policy as a spinoff of APAC and financed by APAC, and then gave his big speech at WINEP, announcing after the fake assassination attempt, announcing the inauguration of the dual containment policy. Sorry, Dr. Pepper coming up there on me. Um, of the dual containment policy, which then lasted for eight years. And so from bases in Saudi Arabia, America was bombing and blockading Iraq at in large degree at Israel's behest. See, part of it was that America had beaten the crap with Israeli encouragement, by the way, had beaten the crap out of Iraq in Iraq War One, Desert Storm. Well, that made Iraq too weak to balance against Iran. So then the thinking was, well, America has to stay in Saudi to balance against them both. Meanwhile, Bill Clinton, and he did believe this, at least for a time, not that he cared or whatever, but his original idea was, well, we'll just make friends with them both. And we can still balance them, offshore balancing this and that, but we used to get along fine with Iran. Hell, Ronald Reagan was selling them missiles within a couple of years of the revolution, after all. And they had the new president, Rafsanjani, was trying to suck up to America. Saddam Hussein was trying to suck up to America. He'd given up every last chemical warhead by the end of 1991 and could prove it. And so it was completely unnecessary. But it was that policy that provoked the Mujahideen that Carter and Reagan had backed on the other side of Iran here in Afghanistan in the 1980s into turning against the United States. And I talk about in my book how the um, Bill Clinton government throughout the 1980s continued to back bin Ladenite forces in Bosnia, Kosovo, and in Chechnya 
and to not some insignificant degree. I mean, this was a big deal that after seeing Afghanistan, I'm sorry, I should have brought up Afghanistan when I was still talking about the Reagan years a minute ago. I usually do that a little bit better. But in the Afghan war, you had the Afghan Mujahideen, but you also had this Arab Afghan army, which included Americans and Chechens and Filipinos and God knows what. It wasn't just Arabs. It was mostly Arabs who traveled there to help fight. But at the end of the war, now they're all a bunch of mercenaries and killers and their governments won't let them come home. They'll go straight to prison or worse. And so, and they got no job skills. This is the seven, nickname right? for that list of diaspora fighters, some of whom fought for bin Laden. The database of the base is called um, right. Al-Qaeda. And that's where the name <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. so look, um, many important Al-Qaeda veterans came out of Bosnia. So they were like too young to have fought in Afghanistan. But Bosnia was then their second chance. And this includes the guys that flew Flight 77 into the Pentagon, Hazmi and Midhar. And it includes um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and as well as Ayman al-Zawahiri and bin Laden, both of them themselves. It includes, I'm sorry, I forgot the guy's name off the top of my head, but he's the guy that recruited Mohammed Atta and Ramsi bin al-Sheib and the, and the Hamburg cell into al-Qaeda, who were the pilots who hit New York. And, you know, I know that 9-11 is a whole other rabbit hole kind of trail with you too, but I know we've I'm talked about my before. mouth shut because it'll go on forever. But you're right. Like, this is something that was known and they knew that, uh, for example, you mentioned al-Hazmi and Nawif al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midhar. They had met at an al-Qaeda summit meeting with KSM in Malaysia, spent the night with them, say that they had their phones tapped. They had the whole Hamburg tapped. They had Yemen cell known. Very little moves were done against it, though. And and these people were living openly with their real names, Fast Track Visa Program, Jetta, and they live in California, and still nothing is done about it. And, you know, people can go back and forth and how much is just the normal incompetence of government or if it's like on looking away on purpose or what. But it culminates in them crashing planes into civilian infrastructure as well as the Pentagon. Even if you think that the CIA and the Mossad cooked up the whole thing, they still had to fool some Arab into thinking it was his idea to kill himself that day, to hijack an American plane and crash it into an American target. And just like... As well, they we had know, legit grievances. If you put yourself in their shoes and you're watching half a million Iraqi children starve to death and the bombings in Lebanon and da 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 like... And that was what bin Laden talked about. And look, bin Laden embellished too. You know, the, the UN study that said 500,000 children had died that Albright admitted to, that was actually not true. It was more like 300,000, which is still a hell of a lot of children to die. The that, excess that was in the middle of the 90s. Yeah. So this is, you got six more years right. of sanction after that. So but then, it probably does get to that number. That's true. That's true. Although that those numbers were like badly skewed by, I think it was one guy in the survey who just found dead kids at every house or whatever and just completely ruined the damn survey. And they retracted that. And there was another better one by a guy named Richard Garfield who found that it was approximately 300,000 excess deaths of children throughout the 1990s, which again is still horrifying. But the point is that bin Laden took that number 500,000 and then he made it 600,000. And then sometimes he made it a million and people didn't take that lightly. It's not like Bill Clinton wasn't 
bombing and blockading Iraq. He was too. And that was the purpose of it. His own government said repeatedly it was collective punishment against the people of Iraq to make them so desperate that they would rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein, even though they had their chance and America encouraged them to do it and then stabbed them in the back like the Bay of Pigs and let them all get slaughtered. And now that they have no chance whatsoever of overthrowing Saddam, the policy literally deliberately was to starve civilians until they're so desperate that they're willing to die trying anyway. They blew up their water treatment. And And that was the propaganda that bin Laden used to recruit, to turn the al-Qaeda jihadists against the United States. And, you know, from all of my study, and especially for this book I'm writing now, because this is all anti-Russian interest, is why Bill Clinton is backing them in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Chechnya, is to stick it to the Russians, right? And so you get, you know, you do enough of that, you get a pretty broad survey of the different jihadists going in and out and where they're from and year after year, what they're doing and where they're going. You can see how a lot of these guys just want to fight with an AK on the ground somewhere in Chechnya for something like bin Laden wanted to do some special forces deep behind enemy lines stuff. That's a smaller minority of people with who had signed on to that much broader vision of Islamist revolution and against the United States. Whereas most of these guys were perfectly happy to just go die in Bosnia you know, as long as it was for the mission, they were fine with that, um, or later in Kosovo. Um, and so, and it is true. I mean, uh, look, I'm not a truther. That'd be a whole different show for us to like parse every nuance of all of that stuff. Well, the, but the I, truther it, thing is so bad. Like we're talking, we're just talking facts right now. And they're, they're so deep in our own end zone. I guess we're all uh, that they can't even admit a plane hit the Pentagon. I mean, that, it's 22 years after 9-11 and people still deny airplanes. So that movement is dead. Uh, yeah, regardless I mean, of what I can I say about it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's like look, these people. Me, the, whatever. I mean, I brought it up, so it's my own damn fault. I mean, the truth is, Ryan, that I was a 9-11 truther for years before it happened. And, you know, I'm from Austin, Texas, and there's a giant, you know, right-wing libertarian conspiracy kook movement in this town and there always has been since before me alex jones was part of it and he should get credit because i'll tell you man it's true from probably 96 on he was saying quite correctly you couldn't dispute it the war on terrorism is next they're gonna let a big one through and then we're gonna have it and you know probably thought y2k was gonna cancel the election or whatever once it was clear that w bush was gonna win the election then he and a lot of people, including myself, I used to tell people this in my cab all the time. W. Bush is going to be the war president. He's the son of the New World Order guy. It's not like, you know, he's Ron Paul or something like that. He's George W. Bush. And he's got Former to make yeah. up the humiliation of leaving Saddam in power in Iraq. His father had been defeated after only one term in office with his great nemesis, Hussein, sitting still in the chair, laughing his ass off. So now the idea was, and I had already reasoned this out as a, you know, in high school, as a, as an 11th grader. Jones was echoing Bill Cooper and there was William well, Pierce and others. Whatever. That, but- I, no, you know what? Bill Cooper was talking about flying saucers and a bunch of complete bullshit, dude. Yeah. He time. was from that, Navy Intel. Listen, I'm from Austin. He wasn't parroting Bar- uh, Bill Cooper. He, he was parroting Newsweek. Yeah. Look, Newsweek said bin Laden is coming for us. And, and Jones and a lot of other people assumed that, well, he's CIA and the whole thing is a put on. But yes, we believe you that he's coming for us. But the whole thing, you know, 
if you accept that as a put on, then you just take that part for granted. But he was in the news. You know what I mean? It wasn't like uh, he for people who weren't paying attention at all. They heard of him in 2001. But I've been reading about him in Newsweek since 96 when he declared war on us, maybe since before that even. Um, so there people was plenty of that figured out who he was maybe after the embassy, covered, you know, um, the new American led by Will Grigg covered bin Ladenite terrorism. They had in-depth coverage of the first world trade center bombing and all that. But anyway, point being that I predicted it. Never mind Jones. I predicted it. I thought it was going to happen. I thought they were going to let one through and all that. But then the problem is once it happened, all the kooks went completely crazy. As you mentioned, they won't even admit a plane hit the Pentagon. Sometimes they won't even admit planes hit the towers. God knows what, right? <laughs> I know. At the very same time that the neocons were pretending that Saddam Hussein did it. And I could see right before my eyes how they were the exact same. As they're just cherry picking every little thing that they like and disregarding every little thing that they don't like and building a case. Doesn't matter whether it's really true or not. That Dick Cheney did it or that Saddam did it or whatever. My take has always been that... And, and look, and I think, you know, going back that I covered what we really do know as best as we can about what the Israelis knew about these guys in the country before the attack. I, I did many interviews about that years ago, but I always thought, and I still believe, and not that this is that wild, but that if there's a real ass question of insider culpability here, it all comes down to what did Saudi intelligence know and when did they know it and what was their motive? If Prince Bandar and Prince Turkey are helping bankroll these guys, to what end? Were they really trying to help attack this country or they were thought that they were bribing them off? They thought they had more time or what? I'm for waterboarding Prince Bandar bin Sultan. Let's get, you know, we'll put him on a gallows with a crown of thorns and a spear in his side and tell him, squeal boy, or you're going to hang here tonight. And let's see what he has to say for himself. That is, it is. Uh, it's that the weirdest thing because it was his mostly the information about his role in September 11th that was redacted for many years in the joint inquiry Senate investigation in September 11th. That's the infamous yeah. 29 pages and the rest. It was all centered around that side of the story. And all that, that Intel was leaked by so many people before it was finally officially unredacted. That was, yeah. I mean, I had films about it. I, I have that, to tell you though, Ry, like, dude, don't you agree? Well, I don't know, man. I, I think that the limited hangout, possible explanation here actually makes a hell of a lot of sense too that the alex station was run by these women who thought that they were spies when they really weren't spies they were analysts Scheuer wasn't even there so they were babysitting their own selves and they wanted to recruit these guys as double agents and they failed to do that and then instead of saying to the fbi oh my god you gotta wrap these guys up they put their hands in their pockets and went whistling off away and hoping everything worked out okay. Like they thought they could flip them. You should talk to Larry Johnson about Alex Station. He's got some good info on Shoyer. <laughs> but, you know, one time I remember putting pennies on the railroad track and the train's coming. And then my buddy told me, you know, sometimes it causes them to derail. And I'm like, what? But then, like, it's too late to do anything. What are we going to do? So it's like, hands in your pockets and whistle and walk away and hope that it doesn't derail, which I don't think that must be a myth. We were stupid little kids. But the point being like, I can relate to the like, uh Oh, 
we did something really bad and like, oh, what do you think is going to happen? And then let's just hope it's okay and not say anything. And, and you know what? I actually I, I can see Lincoln derailing a train. I got to I got to say, I got to say too, Rod, that like, I, I can't know this. This is only like the realm of speculation and imagination. And what do you think is within the realm of possibility or whatever? I don't know. But I almost sometimes believe the CIA when they say we did too warn the FBI about these guys. These FBI agents are idiots, man. They don't even check their email. They don't know nothing. They don't pay any attention and they don't do their damn job. You know, and I had that conversation well, with Colleen Rowley. The, the FBI Rowley, warned the FBI. It's five o'clock quitting time. We're going drinking. There's an email in my box that has some Arab name in it or something. Whatever, man. These FBI agents are a bunch of meathead idiots. They don't know anything. They don't care about anything. Mike Figali of the Washington office was warned by an Iranian informant. It, it was an Iranian informant on Afghanistan who had gotten wind of this plot right, and told them about it. it. Told them had like... They intercepted a courier to Baluchistan with blueprints of the towers and like a lot of pretty specific information. They're in the U.S. They're going to flight schools, and it was all ignored because it was they when they translate documents. There's like the general and the like giving the summary thing. It's not the verbatim translation. So in the summary, they missed they missed it. But then after 9/11, something as innocuous as blueprints of New York or that let whoa what was that again? Let's go back and see that. But they're like, no, we don't need that. And don't look at that. So that's sort of the whistling way too thing. But yes. there well, look was at the I think, look at Colleen Rowley in Minneapolis, right? People know this story. She was time person of the year, whistleblower in 2002. Her team, she was a lawyer at the FBI office there. And her team, they had it just handed right to them. The, the flight school called the FBI, somebody who worked there, called the FBI on suspicions that this guy, Zacharias Musawi, wanted to learn how to fly a plane, but he didn't want to, he didn't care how to take off or land the thing. And they thought that this was a real problem. And they told the local FBI office and the FBI office pinged to DC. And so we want to arrest this guy and search his stuff. And I guess they got permission to arrest him on like some immigration stuff, but they didn't have permission to search his computer. But then they did a little bit of legwork and they figured Which out. Which is almost unheard of. FISA rubber stamps, everything else. Well, right? and on top of that, this guy was tied to Abu Qatab, who was the bin Ladenite leader of the insurgency in Chechnya. And his brother, the French uh, said, his brother and he both were recruiters for, it's Ibn al-Qatab. I called him the wrong name a second ago. It's Ibn al-Qatab. Um, were recruiters for him. And so here's a direct tie to the bin Ladenites. You want to talk about a FISA warrant? There's your FISA warrant. But, Rowley says, the thinking was... We like the terrorists in Chechnya. They're not terrorists. They're insurgents against bad guys when they're fighting against the Russians. It doesn't that matter. My if this guy's been it's not terrorism when we do it. That's right. And so they told her no. And, you know, you can read because there's a lot of journalism about this, frankly, like from a bunch of different people covered this story kind of over the years and talked about how, like, for example, you know, the, the FBI supervisors in DC, they have names. I don't remember them off the top of my head anymore, but they have names and we know their names now. It took years for all that to come out. And we know, you know, kind of their side of the story and whatever. And quite frankly, it just doesn't seem to me 
like they were on any explicit instruction to turn a blind eye because we want the next attack to be successful. And if any FBI agents from out in the field come to you doing a good job, definitely quash them down. It doesn't feel that way to me at all, dude. It just seems like a bunch of stupid fucking pigs acting just like that. That's who they are. And that's how they are. That's why the FBI, the CIA, and the NSA all hated each other. It was because they're all a bunch of contemptible scum, a bunch of meathead idiots, and they all hate each other as much as they probably should. They compete they with each other on who's going to get what bus instead of cooperating. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they, the public choice theory, right? If you know the supervisor doesn't want Minneapolis to get too much credit before the next quarterly report or whatever, who knows what, right? So. Yeah, the field offices from the West Coast and the East Coast apparently had not communicated with each other. And it's not till like after 9-11, Miami sends to Newark, oh, yeah, this moving company you found, uh, they white out which one it is, but one of the 9-11 hijackers actually got a ride from these people, from Classic International Movers, Man. which is related to urban moving. That's the people celebrating the attacks that everybody says was dancing. It, what... How did you have that name so fast? They were they weren't even sure who it was. They they blamed it on the wrong people of the first few days, right? And then then they get Atta's uh, the information. Way, you know, you mentioned the Malaysia meeting earlier. So there was this clip. I don't know if people could find this on Twitter anymore, but it was on Twitter. It was this short little video, you know, five minutes long or something, and it was by Alex Gibney, who's sort of the mainstream documentarian. He did the Taxi to the Dark Side about torture in Afghanistan and stuff. And anyway, it's Gibney, and he's interviewing Lawrence Wright, who wrote The Looming Tower about 9-11, the New Yorker reporter, Austinite. And he's interviewing, I think the guy's name is Doug Miller, and the other guy's Mark Rossini. And these are the FBI agents who claim that they wanted to warn the FBI about the Al-Qaeda guys in the country, but the CIA at the Joint Terrorism Command Center would not let them. That was their story. So, oh, and Ali Soufan is one of them too. And Ali Soufan, people have ever seen the movie The Siege with Denzel Washington and Bruce Willis. Ali Soufan is the guy that um, is portrayed by the actor that played Monk. And he's like the partner of Denzel Washington in the movie. And Denzel Washington is basically John O'Neill in the movie. By the way, in that movie, they switch it to the Shiites, even though it was going to be about the Bin Ladenites. But Saudi pressure made them switch it to Shiite terrorists, mad about the betrayal of 91. Isn't that funny? Anyway. Um, John O'Neill dies in the tower. And John O'Neill dies in the tower. So now they interview these guys. And Ali Soufan tells the story of on September 11th, he was in Yemen working the coal case. And... He got called into the embassy, a.k.a. CIA headquarters in Yemen there. And they said, Ali, come to the back. We want to show you something, buddy. And they opened up a manila folder and gave it to him. And there is essentially a big layout. You know, you can imagine PowerPoint slide type looking presentation, graphical type thing. And here's the Malaysia meeting. And he takes one look at it and he can say, he can see these are the guys that did the coal attack. And these are the guys who attacked America today. Thanks a lot, assholes, for not giving this to me six months ago. We could have wrapped this whole thing up. You guys knew everything about it, and you wouldn't share it. It's a weird thing with the people of the coal attack, some of them too. Like There was a prison break in, not out, and they all end up getting out of jail. 
um, and I don't remember what year that was. It is, you know, it's I know um, a couple of jailbreaks, but it's a very interesting subject that that I'm like dying to talk about. But I want to get it back to uh, yeah, the Shiite stuff, the Shia yeah. stuff, because we can do a show on September 11th stuff or the coal bombing or well, look, I'll, or uh, and like, we we've covered Oklahoma and some other things because Alex blamed that on a rock too, by the way. <laughs> so did Miller. <laughs> uh, yes, um, although not consistently, probably. Um, but anyway, um, so, I mean, here, here's the segue then I had it a second ago. What was I going to say? Um, uh, well, I don't know, but anyway, I'll, I'll do this. Um, the, well, we were saying the Chechen terrorists, they sort of looked well, away. Yeah, Bill Clinton's support for the bad guy. Okay, so he, that's a good place to start, right? So Bill Clinton supported the bad guys all through the 90s, but they were attacking us all through the 90s. And I really don't think these are all CIA inside jobs. I mean, this just sounds like typical jihadi antics to me, man, mostly. You know, like they killed Rabbi Kahana in New York in 1990. It was the yeah. same group. It was basically Egyptian Islamic jihad that did it. And then they were you know, successfully entrapped the rest of the group in the UN uh, and, and Lincoln and, and Washington tunnels plots and prosecuted for that. And then um, Holland they attacked the World Trade Center in 1993. And I know people get all conspiracy about that. But if you look carefully at the conspiracy about that, the conspiracy is that the FBI agents were trying to do their job and the FBI supervisor wouldn't let them. And so they had an informant inside the ring, but when their boss wouldn't let them pay him, and when their boss was demanding that he wear a wire while he's sleeping in his pajamas on the floor of the mosque with all of his fellow terrorists, there's no way in the world. The guy bugged out. He told his buddies, I think the FBI's on to me, so I'm leaving, and bugged out of there. And they lost their informant. His name was Imad Salem, and he was an Egyptian army intelligence officer. Walk-in informant. Perfect. And it was Carson Dunbar's fault. He was yeah. the FBI supervisor who called off the operation. So then they brought in Ramzi Youssef, who built a real bomb and blew up the World Trade Center. Uh, uh, February 26, 93. Bill Clinton had only been office for a month and a week. It was two days before they raided the Branch Davidians, which really changed the subject for everyone from New York to Texas, because that was an ongoing siege for six weeks. And who wants to learn a bunch of Arab names? And only six people were killed. The building didn't fall. And so it just kind of got washed away. People, it was hardly the kind of new sensation that you would think it would be. And the attempt was to knock one tower over into the other. Um, they also tried to kill Americans at a Radisson in Yemen. Yousef, in by the way, is the nephew of KSM. We're, That's right. Yeah. Um, and then they they killed Americans training the Saudi National Guard in 95. They blew up the Kobar Towers in 96, which the Saudi royal family and therefore Bill Clinton and Louis Free of the, the FBI director blamed on, get this, Iranian-backed Saudi Hezbollah, which is a total lie. It was bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who and blockade Iraq. And so instead of the American people getting this message that you got these right-wing religious kooks in Saudi who are willing to blow themselves up in a truck bomb to kill our airmen because they want us the hell off of their soil. Instead, they blamed it on Iran across the Gulf, taking a target opportunity, a target of opportunity for no particular reason at all, which, you know, is a crime against the victims, but it's a crime against the American people that they were deprived of the opportunity to learn that lesson relatively easily 
1996. And instead they stayed and you had the Africa embassy attack of August 98 and then the USS Cole in the year 2000. Again, these are not CIA inside jobs and Saudi and Mossad. You had a weird jobs. dry run in 9-11 and 99 are. also with people who got um, arrested on a plane in Ohio. <clears throat> and it turns out their rental car was by an Al-Qaeda recruiter who had ties to the tower bombings. Are you talking about the LAX plot or something different? It was... Um, in Ohio? I, I call them Mock and Hosh. I nickname all these people. But no, they were going to D.C., but they kept trying to enter the cockpit. And so they just landed in Ohio. Oh, this and, is the one that they like call the dry run for September 11th mm -hmm. or something. Right? Okay, yeah. But the fact it's weird that, okay, these guys, they knew that, well, you know that's not the bathroom excuse. Like, they know what the cockpit yeah. is. They were trying to get in there. But their rental car is, you know, they still being um, driven around by an Al-Qaeda recruiter in the U.S., in Arizona, I believe it was. Um, they they end up suing and saying this is all persecution from racism or or um, bigotry or whatever. That's fine. And, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, well, so, and they also, they busted a guy with a bomb and a map to LAX at the border of Washington State in Vancouver because mm -hmm. the border officer had heard that we're real paranoid about Arab terrorists, you know, for the millennium. This is, I believe, the very beginning of December of 99. Well, there and, was the millennial plot, the Bojinka yeah, plot. Too, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, um, anyways, point is, oh, I know what I was going to say earlier for my great segue. Ah. <laughs> uh, whether you think it was an inside job or not, you'd note that all of the terrorists on those planes that day again they had to be motivated to do this on their own somehow even if you think that they somehow got duped into it they were all from countries that are friendly to the united states they're all from saudi arabia egypt lebanon and yemen mm -hmm. and almost entirely from egypt and saudi and of course al-qaeda is a merger essentially of egyptian islamic jihad and the saudi-led azam group after bin laden took it over um and the one from lebanon had two first cousins in israeli intelligence that's right well Zaid al jara ali al jara and yusuf al jara <laughs> well what a coincidence none of them were from iraq iran or syria right and and so it was not like they were sent by these rival or enemy states of the united states to attack none of them were from hezbollah either right uh, these were all radical sunnis who did this and uh, secular Saddam was a Sunni, but he was secular and no religious radical and no friend of the Bin Ladenites whatsoever. And so then when the entire you know Bin Ladenite war against the United States culminated in the September 11th attack, then what they do, you know, they went to Afghanistan long enough to make sure the war would go on long enough that they could extend it to Iraq. And then in going to Iraq, they screwed up everything. And so here's the thinking behind it. You alluded to this earlier. It's lucky we have the map up here. You mentioned how Dick Cheney said in 1994, he was asked, and people can find this real easily on YouTube. He was at the American Enterprise Institute. And a young interviewer said, geez, Dick Cheney, how come we didn't go all the way to Baghdad in 1991 in the Gulf War? And Cheney makes a very compelling argument. Why the hell not? And I don't know if he agreed with this argument at the time. I believe he did. 
but he certainly made a great case for James Baker's argument, at least, which is if we went all the way to Baghdad, one, we'd be bogged down in urban combat, probably hunting for the former dictator, trying to find him, getting our guys killed. And we'd have the whole struggle of trying to form a new government to rule the country and all this stuff. It's crazy to even think about trying to do that. And then secondly, you have all these neighbors of Iraq and who want pieces of it. And pieces of Iraq, he said, could start flying off. And he said, Iran would very much like to dominate the South. And then this doesn't really make too much sense, but he says Syria wants the West, which is not really right. But although later we would get a Sunni bin Ladenite caliphate that would conquer the East of Syria and the West of Iraq, but that's slightly different. But anyway, and then he says, and what about the Kurds? If the Kurds in the North get independence, well, that's going to cause problems with our allies, the Turks, who have their own problem with restive Kurds. Kurds who might like to be independent and join them. And so these are all giant regional problems that we don't want to have to mess with. So that's why we decided to stop where we were. But then this is where Israel comes back in. You mentioned before Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a Netanyahu fan. And Netanyahu had really been whipping up the crowds against him and calling him a traitor and all this stuff. And once he was assassinated, um, Shimon Perez was essentially ineffectual in charge. He launched a war against Lebanon, which helped motivate the Hamburg cell of hijackers to join Al-Qaeda, um, as previously mentioned there. Uh, when they read bin Laden's first declaration of war in 1996, Mohammed Atta and Ramzi bin al-Sheib decided that that was their path. They wanted to join to fight against the United States for backing Israel um, because uh, bin Laden complained about the Khanna massacre and Operation Grapes of Wrath at great length in there. But then Netanyahu comes in in 96. And he comes in and see, the neoconservative movement in America is very closely tied to the Likud party. It's not just Israel, it's to the Likud. And in fact, um, a writer named J.J. Goldberg at the Jewish Daily Forward had a great series of articles about how not only that, but they were really very close to Benjamin Netanyahu as opposed to Ariel Sharon, who was the leader of the Likud party and was the prime minister at that time. But they just happened to be, for whatever association and reasons, they had just known Netanyahu longer and liked him more. And he was really an Iraq hawk, where Sharon hated Iran more. And what had happened was, you know, Rabin had turned Israel against Iran and away from that doctrine of the periphery as an excuse. As I said, look everyone at Iran while I make a deal with the Palestinians and the other Arab states. Well, Netanyahu's doctrine, and then later Sharon's and Netanyahu's again, was to say, hey, everybody look at Iran, not while I negotiate with the Palestinians, but while I refuse to, while I, you know, never deal in good faith with the Palestinians, whenever you bring that up, I'm going to say, what about the Ayatollah? And use that as the distraction forever. And in 1993, Bill Clinton had insisted on the Oslo deal, where which Rabin wanted to do, which was to set up the Palestinian Authority as sort of a halfway house to being the government of Palestine. And then they were going to work on what they call this peace process to implement the Oslo Accord and create this Palestinian state. So when Netanyahu comes in in 1996, he's greeted by this document written up for him by David Wormser and signed on by Richard Pearl and Douglas Fife. 
Although I think Wormser and Pearl were the real ringleaders there. Fife has attempted to deny responsibility after the fact. <laughs> I doubt um, Douglas Fife wrote any of it. I agree with I Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson about him. Wormser clearly wrote it. And yeah, <laughs> a, what does Fife know about any of this stuff? The fucking dumbest guy on the planet, Tommy. Well, I Frank wish said. I had it queued up where Lawrence Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson says some people said he's the dumbest son of a ever met. He has seldom in my life. And he pauses for a second, have I met? And he's thinking, don't drop an F-bomb, a dumber man. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> eh, sorry for cussing, but there you go. So anyway, Worms are Road. It's called A Clean Break. And everybody can find this at my website, scotthorton.org slash fair use. And um, it's A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm. And then the companion piece is called Coping with Crumbling States, A New Strategy for the Levant or for Israel and the Levant or something. And then... They actually wrote a book called Tyranny's Ally with a forward by Pearl, which I've read, which is just a clean break, the long version. Yeah, and they well, also did Yanan one before, huh? but clean breaks a little different because they have this fantasy about the Hashemites in Jordan and all this. Nonsense. Well, it's in all three of them. I mean, yeah. all three of them say the same thing about that, basically. So here's the plan. Everybody look at the map. Okay. Think about the war we have going on in Israel, Palestine right now. What's going on? Israel's worried about their northern flank. They've got Hezbollah on their northern flank, and there have been missile attacks and tit-for-tat going on like crazy for the last few months. They can't really bomb the Palestinians without at least having to be really worried about what Hezbollah's going to do. And this is essentially the centerpiece of the clean break policy. We have this arc of Iranian power from Iran through Syria to Hezbollah. Now, as long as that arc of power exists, we're basically screwed and we'll have to give the Palestinians their state, peace, you know, a land for peace in the peace process, like in the deal that Israel had already signed, you know. But they said, forget that. We'll give you your own land, some of it back, if, yeah. Yeah, no, forget that. You don't even get your twenty, your 22%, because instead of land for peace, what we're going to do is peace through strength. And what that means is they came up with this Rube Goldberg design, ridiculous mousetrap of a plan. Everybody look at your map and see if you can make this make sense, okay? We're going to get rid of Sunni Saddam in Iraq. And that is going to weaken Iran Syria and Hezbollah. And here's how. Because by getting rid of Iraq, we're going to give Jordan and Turkey dominance in Iraq. And we're going to make, as you just said, a Hashemite king, the cousin of the king of Jordan, will become the new king of Iraq. And because the Hashemites claim to have the blood of the prophet in their veins, that means every Shiite is their slave and will just lay right down on the ground and do whatever they're told. Now, this is completely ridiculous. The Hashemites are Sunnis, and the Shiites don't revere the Sunni line at all, blood of the prophet or not. And even their Shiite um, you know, leadership who wear the black turban and claim to have the blood of the prophet, they're like, you know, afforded extra respect or something. But nobody thinks that their word is the infallible word of God, that they're like the highest pope and that they're and, and king too. And their their word is law and they must be obeyed and revered at all times or whatever. This is just made up. This Northern is Iraq is populated yeah. with Kurdish people who fled from Turkey's ethnic cleansing of Kurds all throughout the 90s. 
Well, the Kurds are in in Wormser's story here. The Kurds are a sideshow, but even the Shiites, you know, the British, the British used to have a sock puppet Hashemite king in Iraq, and he lasted like ten years, uh, maybe twenty. But the Shiites, I don't even think so. And the Shiites had a fatwa against cooperating with him in any way. So, you know, the neocons, they just didn't know the history of this at all. Um, and so anyway, but the plan was, once the new Hashemite king takes over Iraq, then he will order the Shiite clergy in the southern Iraqi city of Najaf to order Hezbollah in southern Lebanon to stop being friends with Iran and Syria and start being friends with Israel instead. Now, later the plan was revised. Where you instead annex of territory king, from them. That's why they hate you. It's not just because of theology or whatever. It's because of Israel's behavior. They don't get it. Well, they don't want to get it, right? That's the whole right. thing. We're not going to compromise. We're just going to get stronger so that they can't stop us. And then that'll be, you know, the, the piece of desolation here is what they're going for. So they said, um, now the plan, they didn't say we got to trick America into invading again. They essentially are promoting a coup d'etat uh, of some kind or another, an uprising or a coup inside the government if they can swing it somehow. But then, you know, of course, by the time they get America to invade, because these are the very same men driving the car when they get, you know, W. Bush obviously wanted to do it too, but they convinced him that, don't worry, you're brilliant. This is definitely going to work. Let's do it um, to launch the war in 2003. And by then they had revised the plan from uh, uh, um, Hashemite, cousin of the King of Jordan, because in fact, the King of Jordan had died. I think his cousin became the King of Jordan. So then they're like, well, scratch that. And they put Ahmed Chalabi was supposed to be the dictator, and then he was going to do all those things that he promised, including build Such an a oil trustworthy guy, <laughs> or reopen the oil pipeline from Kirkuk to Haifa. Mm -hmm. And this was an important thing because that oil pipeline we talked about before, when the Israelis stayed friends with Iran um, until Yitzhak Rabin turned on Iran in 1993, and Iran stopped shipping Israel oil through that secret Mark Rich pipeline in Glencore Pipeline in 1995. And so this was a big part of Israel's policy in the clean break and in the, the neoconservative uh, plan to attack uh, Iraq or to you know somehow topple Iraq was that Iraq would then reactivate the old British pipeline from Kirkuk to Haifa and get the Israelis a discount on their gas, which they were now paying an extra premium on and their people, fuel. You can Google this. You can look at the um, import exports because there's the oil for food program we kind of skipped over. But look at U.S. imports of oil from Iraq, which don't really change from 20, 2002 to, to now even. Then look at Israel. So you can just type this in any search bar. Israel, 77% oil from Iraq. Over than three-fourths of their oil end up coming out of Iraq after the war so somebody got oil but it wasn't the united states well and they're getting that curd that syrian oil right now where america's occupying um syria and and like i said we're publishing a book by gary vogler who was the american oil viceroy during iraq war ii and i'm proud to say that he read enough already and you can read in the comments on enough already on amazon.com he says i spent more time in iraq than any other person in iraq war ii and there's only one book that gets the story right, and this is it. And you can read whatever you know fairy tale you want about it, but Enough Already has a story, but not all of it, and that's coming soon. Well, now we're publishing his next book. Oh, good. And 
it is all about Michael Makovsky and and the the promise of this pipeline and how they, they ended up getting theirs anyway. And that was a huge part. You know, they say the Iraq war was for oil. And it's like, no, it was for Israel. And it's like, no, it was for oil for Israel. There you go. You're both right. But it wasn't for us. It wasn't for Americans to pay less at the pump. Everybody knows the, the, uh, the price of a gallon of gas tripled in the United States from a dollar to $3 a gallon when W. Bush invaded Iraq. That wasn't for us. Um, that was at our expense um, and, and, but helped Israel. However, the overall plan that Turkey and Jordan and America and Israel would dominate Iraq completely fell apart. And when they invaded the country in 03, essentially what happened was W. Bush picked up right where his father had left off in 91. And he took that Shiite revolution all the way to Baghdad. The same guys that were really the reason Saddam invaded Iran in 1980 was because they were already uh, choosing Iran's side and trying to bring the Iranian revolution into Iraq. Uh, these are the same guys that W. Bush took all the way to Baghdad in 2003. In January of 2004, the Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, who's an Iraqi, I guess, you know, now by nationality, but was born in Iran um, and is really a higher ranking Ayatollah even than Khamenei in Iran. He called in January of 2004, for one man, one vote elections. The Americans wanted to do this caucus system, which meant handpicked representatives from around the country were going to serve in the Constitutional Convention and this and that. They were going to try to create whatever sort of uh, multi-factional Catholic type of a system there. And the Shiites said, nope, we want one man, one vote. You said you're giving us democracy. And he said, the Ayatollah said, hey, if you believe in God, I want you to go outside and tell George Bush, you want one man, one vote. So every Shiite in Iraq, all of them, went outside and told Bush, you want to start this war all over again, pal, against the people who sat back and watched and laughed as you got rid of Saddam for them? And Bush buckled and curled up in a little ball at the Ayatollah Sistani's feet. And America's been serving the interests of Sistani and Khamenei ever since then. Because what was he going to do? Admit that he screwed up and call it quits? No. So all he did was just double down, right? You score own goal in soccer, your own team is going, you dummy. And what do you do? Just keep kicking the ball into your own net over and over and over again to prove that you meant to or something, right? Like that's W. Bush. And so... The Shiites, the, the Supreme Islamic Council, wrote the Constitution in the fall of 05, in October, no, uh, what, September, October of, of 04, and then won the outright won the purple-fingered elections of January 2005, which the Sunnis idiotically boycotted. They were going to get their asses kicked anyway, but they were under occupation by the U.S. Army and Marine Corps, and they were outnumbered two to one. So by boycotting the election, they didn't deny its legitimacy in any effectual way. They just caught themselves, they cost themselves any representation in the new regime and, and really, you know, screwed their own people in a, in a bad way there. And that was what really touched off the major civil war in Iraq War II uh, from 2005 through eight was the worst of it. With I should mention too that none of the like all of these political explanations that you're saying and I was saying were voiced on US media. 
for the u.s public the whole thing was iraq has weapons of mass destruction and we got to get them over there before they get us here one of those lies came from the israelis who who claimed that they witnessed the transfer of anthrax from senior iraqi officials to muhammad atta thus linking iraq to 9 11 and that yep. wasn't true there was no meeting in prague they didn't have anthrax neither did al-qaeda the israelis made it up but all of this politicking in history is just it was like saddam is bad he's got these big bad weapons mass destruction you know the same stuff we have and you know he could use it on his own people and it was saddam 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 there was i think it was lincoln chaffee brought up charles taylor and all this. there's lots of bad people in the world we could pick on doing mm -hmm. a lot worse than saddam but none of this was explained then none of this was explained after it's just we think he has wmds oops that was wrong i guess yeah. we miscalculated it wasn't on purpose we you know just, what we um, just thought they were there and they weren't maybe they, they moved him to syria <laughs> they personalize all of the wars right so we we're not killing all the branch davidians it's that damn david koresh that nasty david koresh manuel noriega saddam hussein bashar assad um Gaddafi, yeah. vladimir putin you know they'll even say i forgot who it was this is not original on my part someone else had noticed this and pointed this out on twitter back a few years ago that they'll even be naming countries in europe and go you know france germany poland putin because they can't say russia because they 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 don't want you to think about a place with a bunch of people in it like if you saw a bird's eye view of a map in your head that might be one thing that's dehumanizing enough but what if you like started to picture like a street eye view of russia as a real place with real people in it that screws up the whole narrative it's not gaza strip it's hamas an evil of putin the enemy <laughs> and that is exactly what they did to saddam 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 but what are you not talking about when you're talking about saddam 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 the rest of the Iraqi people. Well, who are they? And what's likely to happen when we overthrow this dictatorship there? You're right. They would not talk about it all. And this is something I was talking about this with Joe Kent on my show earlier today that and I used to complain about this during Iraq War II at the time. They'll never tell you who's who ever. For years and years, this war dragged on and the dividing lines were clear. It's America and the Iraqi people versus the terrorists. And that's it. And they never tell you we're on the side of the Shiites against the Sunnis, ever. But that was what it was. And in fact, what they ended up doing was waging essentially a cleansing campaign, a sectarian cleansing campaign that turned Baghdad from an extremely mixed city to like an 89 or you know 85 to 95% to Shiite city, controlled entirely by the Supreme Islamic Council and um the Dawa Party and Muqtada al-Sadr and their coalition, the United Iraqi Alliance. And so um, the result of that was, you know, in, in 05, there were people in the government and, you know, Hussein, they didn't even kill Hussein until, you know, they lynched him in a barn chanting Muqtada, Muqtada, Muqtada in the spring of 06. But before that, Zalmay Khalilzad, who is one of the neoconservatives, said, and, and Elliot Abrams too, I believe, said, without admitting any fault, that we really screwed up here, man. We really are fighting this war for Iran and their friends. There's no way that we're going to be the dominant faction in this country when we're fighting the war for the supermajority that's friends with Iran next door.
and they really don't need us. And we've really screwed this up. It's time now to start tilting back toward the Sunnis. Those are our allies in the region is the Sunnis. And Khalil Saad was like, you know, he and, and Abrams, I think, were at the leading edge of pushing for the policy that they later called the redirection. And people can read in the WikiLeaks where Khalil Zad travels to Saudi and he meets with the king. And you know what? If anybody knows where they can find where Dick Cheney actually went in early 06 to meet with the king, I could have swore I knew that, but I could never find it again. But I did find where Khalil Zad went and met with him in the beginning of 06. And the king says to Khalil Zad, it's in the WikiLeaks, he says to Khalil Zadi, he says, I don't understand. It used to always be us and you and Saddam against Iran, referring to the 1980s, right? And he says, but now you have given Iraq to Iran on a golden platter, as opposed to a silver platter, an even nicer one than that. And that's the idiom in Saudi, I guess, the way they say it. So Khalil Zad says, yes, you're right, your highness, your majesty, and I'm so sorry, and we're going to make it up to you. Now, this is the explanation for why Barack Obama's government backed al-Qaeda in Syria. It really started under Bush. The change wasn't between administrations. The change was in Bush's second term. This sort of quiet recognition that we really screwed this up. And so if you read the redirection, it's a great article by Seymour Hersh in The New Yorker, an extremely important article from March of 07, which is about a year after the fact when they started implementing this policy. And what it says is, yeah, we're tilting back toward the Sunnis. And to do so, what that meant in practice was backing a group of pseudo bin Ladenites in Lebanon called Fatah al-Islam that was supposed to take on Hezbollah. Not that that went very far. PJAK, which is the Iraqi faction of the Turkish PKK uh, leftists who are, you know, a very minor faction, the third and more minor faction in Iraqi Kurdistan, and then a group called Jandala, who are a bunch of bin Ladenite head shoppers in Iraqi and Pakistani Baluchistan, who committed suicide attacks and head choppings inside Iran. And that was a joint project by America and Israel, both supporting Jandala there, as Mark Perry showed for Foreign Policy magazine. It was, in, in some cases, the Israelis posing as American CIA who were recruiting those guys to do what they did. But it's also proven fact that the CIA was backing them too. Anyway, so this is the policy that Obama picked up. So Obama's not a secret Muslim from Kenya. Obama's a secret skull and bonesman from New Haven, right? He's he's uh, George W. Bush picking up the exact policy um, that W. Bush had left off with. And yeah, so- Pat Buchanan's reading of Clean Break, the road to Damascus leads through Baghdad. The majority of that paper is, we want to deal with Syria, but we can't till we deal with Iraq first. That was one of their main goals because that cuts off the corridor in their minds that that feeds Hezbollah. Right, the arc, they called it. It was Mm -hmm. this arc of Iranian power through Syria and to Hezbollah. And so, yeah, ridiculously, getting rid of Sunni secular Saddam in the middle is supposed to break this arc of power rather than complete Get rid of the Ba'athist movement because that won't help the Shia. And then we'll back al-Nusra front and... You know, or HTS, they're called now, and Aral Al-Sham right. and the FSA, which is all the same people. It has changed hats now and then. Because right. so, which what, means what, what could Latin possibly go wrong? It's like the plot from Carolina Park Boys. Yeah, nothing could right. go wrong. You know? 
Well, so what happened was, I mean, just very briefly, was America backed America and it, all of its allies, a bunch of NATO partners, as well as the GCC, Turkey, and Israel outright supported al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria. And in fact, it's Victoria Newland's name is on the press release, right? If you go and look, December 2012, they say, and it's a great key word, you can't miss it, al-Nusra is just an alias for al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria. And it's Victoria Newland was the official uh, spokesman or spokeswoman for the State Department at the time. So it's her name on the press release stipulating that exactly true fact that these are the Syrian and Iraqi veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was the basically the vanguard edge of the Sunni insurgency that America pu pushed the Iraqi Sunnis into in fighting for the Shiites in Iraq War II. And now they come across the border from Iraq into Syria, and now instead of being the dreaded terrorists, now they're the good guys, the heroes, the moderate rebels, because they they're taking on al-Assad. And, and why? Because Assad is friends with Iran. So W. Bush put Iran up two pegs in Baghdad. So now we want to take him down a peg in Damascus by taking his friend Assad away from him in Damascus. But here's the problem with that. The bin Ladenites had different plans. Why die trying to overthrow Damascus we can, when you can just seize all of eastern Syria? Which is exactly what happened after about two, and a, two years and a half or so of America and our allies backing al-Nusra. There was a big split where the Iraqi-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria split from the Syrian-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria and split from Zawahiri's authority as leader of al-Qaeda as well. and. They declare their own Islamic state in eastern Syria. This is in June of 13. Six months later, the black flag goes up over Fallujah, the major Sunni city just west of Baghdad. And Obama is asked about it, I believe it's a Vanity Fair interview. And he says, listen, just because the JV team puts on a Kobe Bryant jersey doesn't make them the pros. So in other words, Barack Obama doesn't know the first damned thing about it. He's as dumb as W. Bush. He thinks ISIS are the new guys, that ISIS are the amateurs, that they're the nobodies. No, this is Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's group, who are the most dangerous of the suicide bombing, head chopping, lunatic enemies of the United States during Iraq War II. They were the vanguard of the Sunni insurgency that killed 4,000 of our guys in that war. They're not the JV team. They're the most dangerous bin Ladenite terrorists on the planet by a thousand. 2013, they got Mohammed Zamar out of prison. He was the bagman for Mohammed Atta, like Al Qaeda hit us on 9 11. You know that's Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, not the JV team. They negotiated to get him out of prison. He was arrested in Morocco because he's from Syria. They had, Assad had him jailed, and they got him out of jail in a prisoner swap. Yep. I mean, and the, the story of the American support for these bin Ladenites during those years is, is just incredible because, I mean, what we already said is, and there's a million of them where you know, the releasing of the political prisoners from jail and, and you know, uh, Assad living up to the demands of the rebels. And they go, oh, he released all these terrorists just to make the rebels look bad. And it's like, no, that's who they are. It's a bunch of head chopping lunatics, right? But then it's even worse than that, right? Because 
half a year after the JV team comment, they roll right into Western Iraq. And this is everybody listening to this has a picture in their head of that long line of Toyotas with their headlights on that long parade from, of Toyotas. From non-lethal aid package that Obama gave them all the Toyotas with their that's right brand new white paint. And I think it was Brad Hoff on your show for the Levant Report dug up that DIA uh, report saying uh-huh. we're going to s- support the Salafist principalities is section eight C and yeah, Hillary and Clinton fact- signed off on this in emails too. And she ends up becoming secretary of state and they did, they said, yep. you know, these forces opposing Assad, that's our team. And they knew it was Al Qaeda. Well, and in fact, I mean, if people want to look at that DIA report from 2012, it's at the Levant report is Brad Hoff's bit about that. And in fact, you can see how, how, Wait, is that what it was called? I don't remember that. No, that might be the more recent one about the negotiations in Ukraine. Let me think. What was it called? It was called Military to Military. And it was about how America's DIA, i.e. Mike Flynn, is secretly insubordinate and is giving intelligence to the Germans to give to Assad to use to kill al-Qaeda guys in Syria. Where Obama, President Obama, is ordering high treason Mike Flynn is obstructing and Mike Flynn, and he's no hero. He's a total kook and pals with Ladine and blames Hezbollah for all kinds of Al-Qaeda attacks and is a nut. However, on this one, he's more like, why would we back Al-Qaeda against Iran in Syria when we could just attack Iran, right? Like that's his point of view. So he's not like a hero, but he's telling the truth on this. And, and in fact, he gave an interview to Who's the tool from MSNBC that got fired? Um, the Arab guy that just got fired. Oh, from yeah. Maybe or something. Mehdi Hassan. Mehdi Hassan did an interview with Mike Flynn where he goes, man, you guys are deliberately back in ISIS over there. You know what you're doing? And he says, yes, it was a deliberate policy to back the rise of ISIS, which is right. And now, so in, back to that that document. August of 2012, and I'm proud to say you can listen to my show from August of 2012. I got Flint Leverett and all these experts were talking about the exact same thing at the exact same time, that the danger here is to Western Iraq. Because if you know the history of Iraq War II, I didn't, I kind of skipped this, but in the history of Iraq War II, when America fought for the Shiites, they took Baghdad and all that land down to Kuwait and over east to Iran, but they didn't really want to dominate the Western Sunni areas. So Fallujah and I guess Ramadi was kind of a mixed city, but Fallujah and Tikrit and Mosul, these cities were basically just left out in the sun to burn. They got no oil resources. All the oil is owned by the national government, the Shiites and the Kurds. Um, They have no representation in the government. They're basically just screwed. And so for those of us who were very concerned about the fate of Iraq, we understood that Western Iraq is wide open right now. There's nobody protecting it. Patrick Coburn did a story in early spring of, of 14. It might have been in the it might have been the late summer of 12 uh, of, of 13, saying to Crete and, and Mosul and et cetera are wide open for the taking. There's nobody here to protect them. So the idea uh, was, uh, just as the DIA memo warned, these guys pose a major threat to Western Iraq. They could go right back to where their old haunts were in Western Iraq, which is exactly what happened uh, almost 
two years later, when um, in June of 14, they rolled in and seized all of Western Iraq and created the caliphate. And it's just not hyperbole to say Obama built it for them. Now you can say, and I concede, it's true. I can't show you that America transferred money directly to ISIS, but that doesn't matter. That's like a red herring. In fact, what happened was America and its allies poured billions of dollars into the Sunni terrorist side of that war. It Are you familiar a- with the purple shovel story? I'm sorry, These, the purple. It's an NGO. There, There is some evidence that America was directly or well through intermediaries. Well, I'll tell you this. this. There's. There's a group called CAR, which is the um, uh, Combat Armaments something. Shit, I'm sorry, man. But they are experts in tracing the origins of the weapons everywhere. And when they cataloged uh, ISIS's weapons in Iraq, they found these were not primarily weapons seized from American bases left behind. They were weapons that had been given to the so-called moderate rebels in Syria. Now, that doesn't mean that they were given directly to ISIS, but it, it proves that all these weapons were fungible. ISIS would just show up and take what they wanted. The moderate rebels were really just the fence for, for getting the money and getting the guns from America and their allies and then turning them over to the bin Ladenites who lead the insurgency because they don't mind dying. And so... Um, they even had Chechen mercenaries going. So that's that's that, right. They're Chechens, Chechens, the, and the Mayors. real moderates are Assad and the that's SAA. Right. Assad was the one with the three-piece suit and the clean-shaven chin and the secular state that protected all Female different vice president, Christians and, yeah. and Shiites and Sunnis. You know, the Syrian Arab army was predominantly a Sunni Arab army, mm-hmm. um, protecting that secular state from these Bin Ladenite crazies. Um, so. But then, so what happened? I mean, the point is here, I'm sorry, there's so many different tangents I can go down, but the point is, well, two major points. The first one is that even after they conquered Western Iraq, America kept backing them in Syria anyway, through the end of Obama's presidency. And it wasn't until the summer of 17 that Donald Trump canceled the CIA support for the terrorists in Syria. And you might remember, because it was hilarious. The it was right after the meeting with Putin. Post. I think it was huh? June, June 17th or something. Okay. When he well, there you go. Yeah. The headline in the post said, in a move sure to please Vladimir Putin, Trump suspends aid to Syrian rebels. Right. In other words, they accused him of treason for stopping committing treason on behalf of the bin Laden. <laughs> it's something Ben saying, even when he was campaigning for president, he says, why are we doing this? We don't even know who these people are. Or what right. And he was getting those cues from Flint. And he was saying, listen, why don't we just let Syria and Iran finish killing these guys? They're already on the ropes anyway. Which, look, we don't have to ally with Iran and the Shiites against Al-Qaeda. But how about just recognizing the fact that Iran and the Shiites are the enemies of Al-Qaeda? And every time they got, you know, America keeps switching back and forth in this war. But when we're fighting for the Shiites, we're fighting, uh, pardon me, when we're fighting against the Shiites, we're fighting for the Bin Ladenites time and again over here. So they built the caliphate. And by the way, I should say that there is plenty of direct evidence of Turkey and Saudi directly bankrolling ISIS. And there, I don't think there's any question about that. And even Hillary Clinton admitted that. And it's in the WikiLeaks that she talked about that. 
um, that they're the greatest supporters of terrorism. Um, in fact, that that wasn't from the WikiLeaks. That was a State Department email that Jason Leopold got under FOIA um, from BuzzFeed. She uh, really is the worst. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so look, so go back. So <clears throat> America and Saddam fight a war through the 1980s to contain the Iranian Revolution. Then after Iraq War I, America invites the Iranian revolution to come overthrow Saddam, but then they realize their mistake and they change their mind and they let Saddam crush that insurrection. Then that becomes their excuse for staying throughout the 90s, which becomes the motivation for Al-Qaeda to turn on the United States. And once they do in an effective way on September 11th, that becomes the excuse then to go back to Iraq, where then America picks up uh, junior picks up right where senior left off and brings that Shiite revolution all the way to Baghdad and fights this five-year civil war for them, which they are all immediately kicking themselves and wishing they had not done. And they launched this redirection policy again while Bush is still in the chair in 19, uh, pardon me, in 2006. Uh, they launched this redirection. This is the policy Obama inherits when he decides after Libya, which is a parentheses here, to back the Sunni bin Ladenites against the Shiites' best friends in Assad and his regime. Something he inherited but voted to finance three times. Right. And yeah. then that led to the caliphate, and then that led to then Iraq War Three. And in Iraq War Three, even though Obama was still backing the bin Ladenites in Syria, they were the bad guys again in Iraq because what the hell? We built that Shiite government there. We have to protect it. And this guy Baghdadi up on the balcony giving a speech like a, a combination between bin Laden and Mussolini up there and declaring himself the Caliph Ibrahim and all of this, that's not going to fly. So they launched Iraq War Three to destroy the bin Ladenite caliphate. And this included... And I was talking with Joe Kent about this today on the show, man. He gave me details about this. Literally working on the ground with Iranian IRGC and Quds Force officers as a special forces Green Beret uh, officer over there fighting Iraq War III against the caliphate. An American air power flying air cover literally not just for the Shiite militias, but literally for Iran's men on the ground there, the Quds Force, which is the special forces, you know, leadership, the highest caste leadership of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And so then they, so in other words, they fought Iraq War II. They wish they hadn't. Then they fought Iraq War III after they built the caliphate to spite the Shiites. They wish they hadn't helped. They fought another war for them. And, um, it's like, hey, go into Syria and fight with Assad because if you cross this line, we'll bomb you. Right. And in, and in fact, they were chasing them from Iraq into Syria in the first place. And now here they're saying, yeah, go back to Syria. Right. We'll bomb you as long as you're here. But if you're on the Syrian side of the line, we'll arm you. <laughs> and, and by the way, you know, America and Turkey still back the bin Ladenites in the Idlib province in northwestern Syria to this day, which is a problem that's just on stasis, a frozen conflict, uh, unresolved. The place is a little ISIS mini state there. It's not in ISIS. Afrin, yeah, it's uh, Al Nusra, as you said, Hayat Tahrir al Sham. They call themselves now. Um, which is the same thing. Abu Muhammad al-Jalani, who is the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria, the same guy. And so then, one more now. 
they gave up on that. You can hear the audio of John Kerry saying, man, we tried. We poured in all these weapons. But the thing is, the other yeah. guys have a say in this, too. And they poured in more weapons and it didn't work. We Another Hirsch report. There's the red line and the rat line on the um, some of the traffic. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a Hirsch piece about, you know, the origin of the thing. But then this secret uh, audio came from the hot John mic Kerry. of John Kerry talking to the heads of the opposition. And yeah, like, in Britain. And now if you Google this up, folks, skip the New York Times piece because they only have a limited part of it. You got to find the whole thing where they really get into it. And I think you can even hear the audio. And Kerry says specifically that, um, look, we saw the rise of ISIS. We thought we could manage and we thought we could use them to pressure Assad to step down. And accept a political, you know, alternative. But what happened was that didn't work. And instead, he went to Putin and asked for help. And Putin came and saved his ass. Now we're in a situation where it's not going to do any good to pour in any more weapons now. So the thing is, you know, the point is basically moot there and we're backing off. But so then they decided to go to Yemen. And this is complicated by the Iran nuclear deal. For people not too familiar, Iran has been falsely accused of making nuclear weapons for a very long time. They do, in fact, have a latent nuclear deterrent. They've mastered the fuel cycle. They've proven they know how to enrich uranium. They've never have gone up to weapons grade, but certainly they could. You and had like a nine minute speech about that that I put up on uh, my YouTube when I used to have one. Oh, I remember had like uh, 200,000 yep. views or something, which that on the shadow band channels a lot. I mean, I, everyone knows I got banned on YouTube five times over nothing. So I just gave up. But that yeah. used to be there and yeah. it was well received. And I was like, every time they give us a rhetoric about they're six months away, because, you know, they're always six months away. Always six months um, away. I would just like, oh, I, I have a I have a nice thing for this. Here's this video because <laughs> it right. was relevant when you said it. And it was relevant years later because they're still saying the same right. crap. And you have I mean, to explain. Yeah, that about video enrichment. Yeah, like, look, you can't make a bomb below 90% enrichment. Right. But so here's the deal now. Iran's been a member of the NPT since it came out in 68. And as members of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, they have a safeguards agreement with the IAEA that allows the inspectors to loiter around and inspect and seal all their stuff and make sure, uh, put up surveillance cameras and the rest to ensure that uh, the Iranians are not diverting nuclear material to any special uh, or military purpose. So that's the deal. The problem is that that deal might as well have never existed. For years and years and years, they talked about Iran like there just was no non-proliferation treaty, that they weren't members of it, there were no inspections, there's nothing you need to know about this. They would accuse them on one hand of just having a nuclear weapons program an illegal, illicit one, even though what they were describing was their open, above-board civilian electricity program, or they would lie and say, well, they have a secret nuclear weapons program that we don't know about, but we do know about, and it must be there somewhere, and that's where they're breaking the law is their secret nuclear weapons that they're working on. And let's note so, the Israelis bombed both Iraq and Syria on supposed secret nuclear weapons bases. That were right. not secret weapons bases at all. 
And in fact, when they bombed Iraq, the Osirak reactor in 1981, they just drove Saddam Hussein's nuclear program underground. It had been a safeguarded, inspected program. They drove it underground and turned it into a nuclear weapons program. And at the end of 1990, uh, the war of 91, they found that he actually had a nuclear weapons program that they had no idea about. And it was not that advanced, but this actually became part of the lore for Iraq War II. Because Dick Cheney said, well, if the CIA says Saddam's not making nuclear weapons, well, that's what they said back in 91. And we found out they were wrong about that. So that became like why we can discount any caution that they they weren't in 81. You forced them to find a deterrent because of these preemptive attacks. And Libya started doing the same thing. And they've been. Yeah. And the Reagan government opposed that. I mean, at the time, and I believe condemned it, that the Israelis had gone ahead and and done that. And then when they bombed in 2000, I forget if it was six or seven, I guess it was seven when they bombed the the facility in Syria. That wasn't a nuclear facility at all. That thing was a hoax and was widely debunked. They took pictures of North Korea's facility and turned them 90 degrees and pointed to that. I remember that being debunked within like faster than the Saddam statue toppling. It was on antiwar.com. They didn't Uh, do this. My wife was reporting for Raw Story at the time, and she had sources from the IAEA who were on scene and saying, this is not a nuclear anything. Trust me. There's. Do you remember what Assad said about the, the nuclear deal and everything? He goes, I agree. Let's have a nuclear weapons free Middle East. Yeah. Oh, no wonder they had to get rid of those. (laughs) Um, but so here's the thing, man, to go back to 2015, it was as though the NPT didn't exist. The Israelis and their partisans in America would just pretend that Iran is making nukes and we got to stop them. And there was a time where I believe that Netanyahu was just bluffing, but that I think that the Obama government did not know whether he was just bluffing or not. And the threat was that Israel was going to start a war. They were going to launch a massive air campaign against Iran, and they were going to drag us into it. And we're going to have to do it. You might remember at one point, Ryan, I'm sure you remember, that the Obama government put a story in NBC News about Israel assassinating nuclear scientists and even graduate students and stuff, and how this has got to stop, and we're really upset. Now, you and I understand the significance of that running at NBC. That Mm -hmm. means that the White House gave it to them. And the president of the United States himself wanted them to run that story because he was pissed off. And he was trying to put some pressure on Israel to shut the hell up and back the hell off. There was Stuxnet as well. That was a collab with Israel. The Stuxnet virus to attack um, components of nuclear facilities. Do you remember? Yeah. yeah, That was with the Israelis too. And yeah, and the Israelis like ruined it. They supposedly added a bunch of code to it and and got it, you know, is what caused it to escape and whatever. They screwed it up. That was a, it started out as a program to sabotage uh, Iran's centrifuges, which I believe did work. They had, you know, some failures or whatever, speed up the centrifuges till they get out of control and blow and whatever. So um, that was part of it. But so the nuclear deal of 2015 essentially was just saying, Here's another layer of nuclear deal. And let's see the Hawks ignore this, right? You can pretend that the NPT doesn't exist, but after you pass the JCPOA, you're not going to be able to pretend to believe that Iran is making nukes because it's going to be so obviously above board and proven and open to everyone that they just are not either shut up. We got expanded inspections and a vastly rolled back nuclear program. They poured concrete into their Iraq 
heavy water reactor. They, uh, you know, restricted vastly the number of centrifuges operating at Natanz. They converted the um, facility at Fordo from a uh, actual production facility to simply a research facility and, and on and on and on. And they expanded their inspection regime vastly. And however, to do that, though, really pissed off the Saudis. Now, you might think the Saudis would appreciate America locking down Iran's nuclear program, but they weren't afraid of an Iranian bomb because that was always a hoax anyway. What they were afraid of now was that America was going to start tilting back towards Iran like it used to be in the old days. And so then instead of Saudi Arabia being number one or number two in the American-led order of the Middle East, might get thrown under the bus. And, you know, because the Americans do talk a lot of smack about Saudi Arabia because they do cause a lot of problems for us. And so and they're a popular punching bag during election time and stuff like that. Right. Joe Biden said, I'm going to make him a pariah and whatever, because people really don't like them. Not that he really meant that. But they don't like him either. Yeah. Well, he, I think, they did an SNL skit of Harris and Biden. It's pretty good. I'll just mention for the audience what Elon was on there. But um, the facility Scott was talking about, it sounded like he said. Iraq. It's called a rock, like a R a K. Right. That's, that's what oh, he means. That's yeah. right. Um, and so anyway, in order to appease Saudi Arabia for passing the nuclear deal, Obama agreed to help them launch a war in Yemen. And there's a whole backstory. I won't do the whole damn backstory, but it's America's fault that this group of Shiites from the Northern Sada province had come to march and seize the capital city by the end of 2014. And they did so against Iran's direct advice. They said, if you guys do this, Saudi Arabia is going to freak out and start a war against you. Don't do it. And the Houthis did it anyway. And they did it in alliance with America's former sock puppet dictator, Abdullah Saleh. And then the Obama government just gave Saudi Arabia and UAE a green light to launch an absolutely horrific and devastating war of failed regime change against the new regime in Yemen. A war now, that the media to, ignored. What? I think MSNBC mentioned Yemen once in a year and a half. Oh, yeah. No, it was. Yeah, the story was they did not mention the word one time in an entire year was was the stat that you're thinking of there. Worse yeah, maybe once said, in a year and a yeah. half. Maybe yeah, and even then, I'm sure they were lying and spinning the whole thing the other way and never explaining at all what was going on. But so if you go back to nine years ago, America was helping the Houthis after they had seized power. Our current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, was then a four-star general, the head of Central Command. And he was giving the Houthis intelligence to use to target and kill al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. The guys that had bombed the coal, the guys who had tried to blow up the plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009 with the underpants bomb. The guys who did the Charlie Hebdo attack and a couple of the other attacks in Europe as well. And I mean, these are real ass Al-Qaeda guys, not Al-Qaeda linked so-and-so. These are real ass Al-Qaeda guys. And to them, the only good Shiites are dead Shiite. So the Americans were giving the Shiites, the Houthis, intelligence to use to target and kill Al-Qaeda guys. Two months later, in March of 15, Obama turned around and stabbed the Houthis in the back and took Al-Qaeda's side against them. Saudi Arabia, UAE, and yes, Al-Qaeda's side in a civil war. And that war, it, well, not really civil war, but essentially this foreign air campaign um, 
you know, backing, yes, different uh, divided factions on the ground there. But the Houthis, I mean, they call them rebels even to this day. They seized the capital city nine years ago. And they've ruled more than 80% of the population of the country ever since then. I'm not saying they stood for fair elections or anything, but to say that they're rebels is completely just a ridiculous lie. That's like saying Joe Biden and the government are rebels. No, they're not. They're the sitting party in power. End of argument. There is no argument. Um, and so America has been bombing, or helping Saudi and UAE bomb them and this failed attempt to at regime change from March of 15 through right around March of 22. And then two years ago, what happened was the Houthis blew up another oil refinery with, a, I guess, a drone attack or a missile attack. I think a drone attack outside of Riyadh. And this had gone on way too often. This had happened too many times. And somebody uh, with a white robe and a pile of money told Mohammed bin Salman, enough of this. You're going to bring an end to this war now. You already lost in off. And so bin Salman sued for peace. And they've been working on trying to hammer out a peace deal for two years. And they're just finally achieving it when Israel's war in, uh, in Gaza has led to um, the Houthis getting involved and striking at American shipping in uh, the Red Sea and has America now bombing the hell out of the Houthis again and ruining the peace deal because the Biden government is putting them back on the terrorist list, which means that um, all their finances will be frozen and they won't be able to pay the salaries of the civil servants in the north of the countries in the north of the country as they had promised in the deal. And so it looks like the peace deal with Saudi is off. And the war is spreading, and which brings us back to Israel and the clean break. Because what's going on in Israel right now? They're bombing the Palestinians, but they're terrified about what's going to happen with Hezbollah on their northern front. The clean break didn't work. All they did was complete this Shiite arc of power. They made Iran, they made Syria more dependent on Iran and Hezbollah than ever before. Hezbollah is far more powerful than they ever were before. And Israel does not have that freedom of action um, in Palestine because they're worried about what Hezbollah will do in, um, in uh, Lebanon. So here we are 28 years after the clean break and the whole thing's an entire failure. And instead of peace through strength, we got nothing but chaos. And the Netanyahu doctrine that said that we'll the Israelis will back uh, Hamas and both support Hamas in Gaza in order to keep the Palestinians divided and conquered so that they would not have to negotiate in good faith over the Palestinian That policy has been completely shipwrecked now. And as I'm sure you know, Ryan, on September the 22nd, Netanyahu went to the UN and gave a big speech crowing about how I did it. I won. It worked. And screw you. And he said, see what the deal was. He had a map that didn't have Palestine on it, too. That's right. He said it's a new Middle East. He was mocking uh, Shimon Perez there, I guess, saying it's a new Middle East. And um, he it, that's right. He pulled up a map that had no Gaza or West Bank on it. It's all Israel. And he said, and now look, we're making friends with all these Sunni Arab states. And instead of, boards, yeah. it, you know, the, the deal had always been the Sunni Arab kingdoms had always promised they would never normalize relations with Israel unless they gave a, sh a fair shake to the Palestinians. And 
But Jared Kushner had figured out that they all have their price and the American taxpayer will pay it or borrow it from China. And so the uh, Bahrain gets F-16s, UAE gets F-35s, Sudan gets debt relief, and Morocco gets uh, Trump's recognition of their seizure of the northern half of the nation of Western Sahara. And these are these countries' bribes to sign these Abraham Accords and normalize relations with Israel. So Netanyahu in that speech, of course, he turns it around and says, oh, the Palestinians were always holding these normalization deals hostage um, and now they won't be allowed to anymore. But if you, you know, the rough paraphrase is if you want to read it between the lines, what he's saying is absolutely screw you Palestinians. I win, you lose. You don't get independence and you don't get citizenship. You don't get nothing. You get occupation, and we're going to continue to consistently colonize the West Bank, and we're going to continue to bomb you and hem you in in Gaza, and there's nothing that you can do about it, and ha-ha, nobody's coming for you. The Saudis are next. Everyone who was a holdout in the region who said they wouldn't recognize us uh, officially until we made a deal with you, well, we beat that, and so now you're licked. And so isn't it great? That was the speech on September the 22nd. Two weeks later, Hamas broke out of their pen and said, we'll show you and turn this whole thing, you know, uh, the, the temperature on the entire thing all the way back up to fever pitch again. And turn, in fact, turn the entire region upside down. And now down. they want to fight the entire Shia world. Right. And now that's right. And now they're threatening to expand the whole war into a regional war against all the Shiites with America. You know, they hope taking their side. And, and there is say, one group that really loves this. There's one group that really loves this. And we're going to hear from them right now. Read Mark, ground producer, and pride, patriotic projectile party poppers. Got some up with the brown people making trouble for the empire. Place them with a charred crater and a cloud of white smoke. So remember, if your next geostrategic boondoggle is going awry, don't call us. We'll call you. A lot of greed, Martin. There you go. <laughs> there you go. They make 50 bucks every time Israel kills a little kid. So that's the deal. So look, so just again, not to recap the whole damn thing again, but there you go. America, mostly at Israel's behest, intervening. Here and there and here and there and here and there, back and forth over and over again, trying to clean up the excesses of their last mistake. And so now we literally are in a situation where Israel has got us bombing the government of Iraq that we fought two civil wars for. And, you know, are threatening to get our embassy overrun and our guys forced right the hell out of there. And meanwhile, right, I think it's notable and important that virtually no one in D.C. understands any of what we just talked about tonight, about who's who, why it matters at all, whether we switch sides at all. We're fighting terror. We're fighting against radical fundamentalist Islam. Don't you want to know who's the shirts and who's the skins and what difference it makes? And they try to, to be, though, all of that they away. There used to be the James Bakers, the Schwarzkopf, the people like you can disagree with them, but they knew better. You know, they knew not to do that. There's no adults in the room anymore. I'm yeah. thinking about the Biden regime and I can't think of like who's Kissinger's dad's like who's 
not retarded. I'm not even saying like normal. Like who's not an idiot in that whole like Newland's an idiot. Blinken's not a serious person at all. Sullivan. Uh, Sullivan is a raving lunatic. You know, Sullivan's the guy that wrote to Hillary. He, 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 look, cheeky, cheeky. Isn't it cute that Zawahiri has endorsed our revolution in Syria? He said, AQ is on our side in this one. And his memo was not, hey, Hillary, boss, I think maybe we need to very carefully rethink what we're doing here now that we see whose side we're on and who's on our same side in this. Instead, it was he, 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 again, Hands in your pockets, whistling. The train might derail, but you know what? Let's <laughs> see what happens. Oops. You know, it led to the damn caliphate. Yeah, they've got new. And you look at the counterparts. Let's say Russia, for example, with like Lagrov. And these. you have serious people, serious men and women. They know history. They know politics. They're real, like, statesmen. Mm-hmm. There is no equivalent. Look at our White House press secretary. I look at theirs. Yeah. You know what? I saw a funny thing yesterday on Twitter. Somebody somebody was quoting an Iranian saying, if we were to do the tit for tat, who's the American equivalent of General Soleimani? SpongeBob? Mickey Mouse? (laughs) Soros, probably. No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... No, there's no, she's, there's no one like that. I don't, and Trump, this is fun. I don't know if this was very clever way of telling on them or what, but he, the other day he, he came out and said, yeah, the Israelis are supposed to do that with us. And then they didn't. (laughs) Oh, and the killing of Soleimani. Yeah. He has said before that it was Netanyahu that convinced him to do it. Yeah. But Jim Loeb had dug that up. There was a working group that was looking for excuses and, Trump just wouldn't do it unless an American died. And then uh, some Iraqi translator, I think, who'd been American all of a week or something, was mm-hmm. who died in the in the mortar fire from somebody. And, and then and why was Soleimani in Iraq? He was there to meet yeah. with the Saudis. Mm-hmm. He was fighting the actual terrorists in Syria. Yep. And they murdered him, and that resulted in a U.S. base being struck. A helicopter hangar got destroyed. No one died. bunch of, uh, not wounded, they call them injured. Just, a lot of yeah. people confuse that and go, oh, look, all these wounded. I'm like, no, that's different. Uh, I remember I was on press TV when that happened, and I ended up being on there for like an hour instead of like five minutes trying to talk people down. No, 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 no. Don't react like that. That's what they want. (laughs) And Trump did let the Ayatollah get the last word on that one. He bombed the empty corner of an American base, gave some guys some concussions, and then Trump stopped. And, you know, they could have kept escalating, and he refused to. But it's still dangerous, very dangerous move for him to make. I should say here, too. One of the dumbest things he did. Yeah, uh, there's a few, but um, that's up there, though. He, um, I should say now about Biden, I mean, this sounds absurd. People focus on the absurdity of it, and it is absurd that they go, no, we're not at war with Yemen. We're just bombing them. And people, you know, I see your eyes roll, and they should. That is no, I'm thinking of him saying, is that going to work? No, but we're going to do it. <laughs> at the same time, though, there is meaning there, right? Like, they're, they... It's, no, it's, it's escalation ladders. We're not full-out invading Yemen. 
Right, yeah. right. They're they're telling the Houthis, we don't want a war with you. Yes, we're bombing you. And we want you to de-escalate what you're doing. But by saying we're not at war with you every day, we're trying to make the point that like, dude, if you'll stop, we'll stop kind of thing, which the Houthis are not going to do. We Again, America backed a nine, you know, eight, nine year war against them. And they didn't <laughs> yeah, and Houthis can say, that. when you stop, we'll stop. Stop genociding Gaza. Because yeah. that's well, the whole point of stopping ships, right? That, of course. No, you yeah. know, this, I'm just saying that in the Americans' mind, I, I think it is plausible that they mean what they're telling the papers, that they want to do these reprisal strikes against the Houthis, against Khatib Hezbollah in Iraq and possibly in Syria. And then they want to say, see, don't you mess with us and keep it there. I agree I, with I your point. Them, but they don't want to spread the war to Iran. I think Netanyahu might want to spread the war to Iran. Right? But I, I don't think, think they know Biden that they can't, they can't win and also, that. One more thing. I also I don't think that the Ayatollah wants to fight. Now I think that he might, and that things could get much worse. But I think the Ayatollah Khamenei's position here has been for everyone to cool it. And in fact, the Khatib Hezbollah guys even blamed him and said, "Well, the Islamic Republic wants us to chill out, so I guess we will." You know, and they're kind of being cheeky about it. They and, didn't uh, want this. Think about before October seventh, Iran. They just before that. Biden had unfrozen their money and they're right. thinking, all right, we're going to get our, our, our money back. We could get on this Iran nuclear deal. We, you know, the war in, between Yemen and Saudi Arabia is over. Things are looking good. Why would you want to disrupt everything when things yeah. are finally going your way? And then they all said, well, Iran backs Hamas. What evidence has ever been provided? They back Hezbollah. They don't back Hamas. If Hamas had material support from Iran, they'd have body armor and shoes and basic things that they don't have. Yeah, I think that money is all you know. And, you and could, look, I you mean, you can send them crypto or something, but I mean, Hamas they get it from Qatar. Revolution in Syria, and that pissed off the Iranians a lot. Although I think my understanding is that they've kind of restored relations. But it, you're right that you know Iran has no ability to transport heavy weapons to them in the way that, that like they do for Hezbollah. And I think that's part of why the Israelis got caught napping on the seventh is because as they always put it, well, Hezbollah, those guys are dangerous, but Hamas, they're a bunch of punks. They're not going to do anything. They're We're not afraid of them. The it's like the U.S. Army being afraid of the Crips or the Bloods. Yeah, right. They're not going to do nothing, dude. We're an armed force, not them. And then, but meanwhile, it's like, boy, yeah, but they catch you sleeping. They're going to cut your throat, you know? They got through. Well, what's common sense to you and I hasn't been said on the TV. So when you're talking about um, Joe Biden with Yemen, sort of saying, hey, you know, you know, we'll have measured response, if you will. They haven't ever put it clearly to the public that the whole reason that Yemen is stopping ships is because of Israel's attacks on Gaza. Right. You know that. I know that. They've stated that. But has the mass media ever told people, oh, they're not doing this out of the blue. This is, you know, well, and if they did, humanitarian. The, yeah, they would go, oh, it's the Iranian terrorist alliance or whatever, and just spin it as pure evil mm -hmm. rather than the Houthis actually enforcing the genocide convention that they signed that obligates them to attempt to intervene. And no mention that the U.S. supported the war against them for many years, like you just said. Yeah. That's not it. That context isn't there. So right. sometimes we get an inside baseball, like you, we have to make these simple points for people that, that, you know, don't have time to 
sit there and learn about Yemen and the, yeah. you know Sudan and things like that. Yeah, they they need it in a little sound bites five minute segment on the news, and it isn't there. I and mean, how about this for a soundbite? America's been killing people over there for 30 years straight, and everything's a wreck. None of it worked. And no one can say the war on terrorism has been a success. Nobody who fought in Iraq War II or Iraq War III thinks it was great. Because even if you fought in Iraq War III and helped destroy the caliphate, yeah, for who? The IRGC that you wish you hadn't have fought that one or the war before that for either and who we're bombing right now. So, um, you know, they're, they're best friends in there anyway. So even if you say, well, look, we did help the supermajority Shiites destroy the bin Ladenite insurgency twice. Okay, fine. But there only ever was a bin Ladenite insurgency because you invaded in the first place the first time and backed them in Syria next door the second time. And then both times when you helped destroy it, you help destroy it on behalf of people who you hate and hate you and have no allegiance to you whatsoever. So who can brag about that? Like, I'm not picking on veterans who are listening to this. I'm taking their side. They know that this is right. It's not fair that they've been used this way. And, you know, I was, I was, uh, this is a thing from a few months ago, but still it kind of bothers me a little bit. I think about this. There's this movie with Liam Neeson where he's on a plane, he's like an air marshal on a plane, and there's a bad guy who's like killing people, and so it's a murder mystery on a plane and whatever. Anyway, <laughs> I'm ruining the movie for everybody, okay? You can get it on the Pirate Bay for free. At the end of the movie, it turns out the bad guy is upset because his father died on September 11th, and then he was sent off to war in Iraq, right? A war which he still doesn't understand. And now... By hijacking this plane and killing these people, he's proving that America doesn't do security very well. Okay, I'm not saying it was a very well-written plot of a movie, but that was the plot of the movie. But the part that bothered me was I think that it was probably very representative of the American people and probably very representative of the Americans who were GIs in Iraq War II, that they don't understand what that war was even about at all. Can you imagine and how coming frustrating back? that is? with a missing leg that. or something yeah and, and just thinking what was that what was the point of being yeah. there at all there were no you WMDs. were fighting for israel that yeah, was fighting for israel the yeah. israeli spies had hijacked the w bush government and they used you and it didn't even work right they were supposed to get an oil pipeline to haifa and yeah they had their plan b and whatever they were supposed to have a friendly Shiite regime that was going to tell Hezbollah to be nice from now on and all this stuff. Total hoax. They were going to empower the Iraqi Shia. We're going to love their new democracy so much that they were going to embarrass and humiliate the Iranian regime right out of power as the Iranian people all rise up in unison to demand a pro-American democracy to replace the Ayatollah. And that was how this was supposed to all play out. And, and Wolfowitz now, said the oil would pay for the whole thing. Yeah, and oil will and pay we'll be for greeted the in the street with cakes. Remember that? That was him. <laughs> yep, Wolfowitz and 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 you know Cheney parroting him. And not to mention because this is always like not as bad, obviously, as all the starvation and killing and stuff. But from Palmyra, Syria to Baghdad, yeah, all of these museums and things got looted, and priceless historical artifacts are just gone, destroyed forever. And Babylon, is, too. it's a crime to everyone. And it's in yeah. Afghanistan too, they blew up these Buddhist statues that were some of the oldest things. 
humans made that we still have just destroyed all these things. And, um, yeah, well, that was the Taliban in the nineties, but actually Bill Clinton had helped them rise to power in the nineties. So that counts. Well, that counts. Well, yeah. when Palmyra, Syria, and then in Baghdad, Iraq, that was yeah. all, you know, these insurgents went around and destroying, hey, toppling and statues, Palmyra, all of that. In 2015, ISIS was rolling on Palmyra and the Americans admitted that they deliberately withheld their force. They could have carpet bombed that convoy and they deliberately did not. They withheld. They wanted. They said this. The State Department spokesman said it at the time. Mark Toner, I believe it was that. Yes, we're holding back because if we blast ISIS taking Palmyra, then that will relieve some pressure on Assad's forces fighting in Idlib, where they were fighting against al-Nusra terrorists with tow missiles. Um, where they get and those? where they control Idlib province to this day, and where after they took Idlib, they threatened, uh, forgive me, it's the, the one province to the west of there that borders the sea where um, all of the uh, Alawites live, where they were threatening to kill them all. Um and, you know, we're almost in a position to do so. Well, they took Mambij west of Aleppo. They never really had Idlib. But Latakia, I think you're talking about, that, that's where Russia has their base, too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Latakia or whatever, exactly. Latakia, yeah. That's the place I'm thinking of there. Mm -hmm. uh, where they didn't quite make it, but they almost didn't. The Americans were trying to help them get there, where they had, vow where they had vowed to kill everybody. And in fact... I think there was a, there were atrocities there. I think they did make it there. They just didn't finish. But I remember because I remember reading when the Assad's forces got there, they're like dead bodies in the trees and and all kinds of stuff going on there in Latakia. Yeah, they were. Um, so there was humanitarian aid, but the Al Qaeda group seized it and were uh, using it as extortion. They'd give it at you know basically sell me everything you have. And you can feed your kids. And then Palmyra is this ancient ruin of, of Roman civilization. Yeah. And where the director of antiquities, they beheaded him and crucified his headless corpse on a traffic light in town. That was the side America took in that war. The Rad al-Sham group was not even labeled as terrorists until they could not do it because they filmed themselves where they threw those women up against the wall, machine gunned and guts everywhere. So, I talked to Senator Richard um, from Richard Black. Black from Virginia about that. Yeah. He had the photographs. I'm like, ah, I don't think you can show those. <laughs> we just described them. Yeah. So this is what we did. But he's been very good on all of that. And I wish yeah. we had and more people like that. He went, he met Hassad, he met his wife, he talked to him, you know. Very few politicians willing to, to do this. And that's what we had. Tucker went and talked to Vladimir Putin today, a couple hours I ago. Um, yeah, I can't wait. That thing just aired right before we went on. Here, I was, so I was I'm watching it. It's two hours long and I watched, um, about, about an hour of it and 15 or something before we, I had you on, but it's pretty good. I, I don't know if everyone will enjoy it. Cause it's not the, it's not like his other interviews with some of the other people he's interviews. Putin is a very legalistic, dry, historical nerd. And he, you know, he answered things with very long answers. But he said, look, we got time. I'm I'm Vladimir Putin. There's no time limit here. Tucker, you're you're yeah. gonna listen to my full answer. Which should is it I right mean, that he interviewed Snowden too? He did he did uh he did one Rogan interviewed Snowden as well. But um yeah, Tucker no, but I mean, Tucker did Tucker interview him while he's over there? 
I don't know I yet. Think I, read- I think he's planning to. He's limited on where he oh. can go and not. But I mean, he interviewed Putin. He should interview Snowden. Like he, he's got to. I think I read on Twitter that he interviewed Snowden and he interviewed that chick uh, Tara Reid uh, that accused Biden of uh, sexually assaulting her, who's in Russia now as well. Yeah, she's in one. And of then my I saw that he was on on his way to Belgrade or had landed in Belgrade, so I think he had already left Russia. So yeah, Putin was on the. Or didn't I think on the sixth or something, and then it aired today. But okay. yeah, so maybe he got Snowden. If you saw that on Twitter, I mean, probably he did. Then I'd, I'd sure like to see that. I'm less interested in what Putin has to say. I've heard him, but uh, it's all I'd stuff you know. But it's fun. It's going to be good for like Tucker fans to hear it for the first time. Yeah, that's true. So it's like I was yeah. listening. I was like, yeah. I mean, this is this like. I know this because I've gone and listened to him talk anyway. And it says he's saying the same things. He's just saying it to Tucker. He said, we did have right. a plan for Ukraine. We gave you this. And Boris Johnson came in and ruined it. We did try to negotiate. We told you yeah. what was up. He explained the Maidan coup and all this. All stuff you know. All stuff we've heard. All stuff you've said. But, yeah, you know, he's saying it directly to what used to be the highest rated U.S. media personality. That's what I call them. <laughs> there was. And uh, so a lot of people who are huge Tucker Fox News types are going to hear this for the first time in their life or hear it. But this time Tucker's saying it, not Ryan Dawson, not Scott Horton. Like this is Tucker Carlson yeah. saying it. And then it has more weight for I them. I hope he really asked him to like go over X key score this and prism that. He said really who blew up the Nord Stream line. Like he straight was out like, oh shoot, <laughs> here we go again. But yeah, Putin said anyway. you did, <laughs> and, and Tucker's like, I I didn't. And he's he's the royal you, you know what I mean? But was, you can see how nervous yeah. he was. <laughs> That's why I didn't do it, man. I I was there, but I was only supervising. I don't think that sarcasm, that American sarcasm, like works in translation. I just know from Japan, oh. they're just they don't get it when you. We have so many idioms yeah. you don't even realize it, but. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. All well, right, man. Well, I think that's about all I know. I don't think it is, but like, <laughs> it's all the time. The two books behind you, Fool's Aaron and Enough Already, uh, that gets way more into Afghanistan and way more into our, what do you call it? The backdraft and blowback, just the utter folly where yeah. it's kind of like somebody giving a bad haircut. They cut off too much on this side. Oh, let me go to this side. Oops, did too much there. Let me go back there. They just keep <laughs> yeah. switching seams. My hairline, Dawson, shut up. Is that is that what happened? You got your hair cut by a neocon? <laughs> the lady went crazy with the scissors, and now it's bald where there used to be hair. Yeah, well, it's on purpose. Yeah, yeah I know. All right, man. Well, let's. I, I didn't mean to get all into 9 11, but that happens with me. Um, I tried That's to be right. really like, shut up. I don't get into it because I can talk forever. But that would be an interesting That's show to do. Story. And uh, maybe, and I'd like to talk to you just about Gaza and what's going on there just on that one day. It's, sure. It's so sad. Everybody, thank you. you. Let's, I don't know what's going on yep. with the camera today. We did have some check chats come in. See John Bolton sent in twenty. Uh, I hope you're good, right? Oh then one hell of a year watching Israel implode and exposed like never before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they really are on a path of self destruction because they don't. I agree with yeah. that. I think they're, you know, just 
they got a drunk driver in charge of that thing, man. Every kid they kid, every kid they murder is one step closer to their self destruction. I I think that's totally right. I think that they're crazy if they think that that fighting this war this way is going to lead to their strength in the long term. I think it's just it's suicide. It's completely nuts what they're doing. We had a question for you about Biden's end goal in the current war in Israel. And also they want to know your thoughts on uh, RFK Jr. I don't know if you have time to answer those. I, I can, I'll, I'll give it real quick. I, you know, I think, I think Biden does not want to see the full ethnic cleansing of Gaza. I also think he's so disconnected. I mean, who knows? He's given such carte blanche to Israel. I think Netanyahu's just going to do whatever he wants. The Americans can urge caution here or there, but they're not willing to make any threats. I saw well, they you know, did they use their veto threat. power of the UN to to block resolutions condemning it. Well, they don't even need to do that. They could just pick up the phone and be like, "Listen, we're serious about this now, goddammit. it!" And that would count for a lot. I did see where they said something pretty harsh about we would not support if Israel starts a massive campaign in Rafah right now. But I don't know if they really would do anything about it. But um, they said the same thing before Khan Yunus. Just go south. Now they're bombing the south. Well, they said, you know, that Antony Blinken said there's no military solution here. You're not going to hunt down and kill every last member of Hamas. So what are you doing? We need to negotiate. Then the Americans are taking the lead and trying to push these negotiations hostage. uh, uh, exchanges and ceasefires. Netanyahu is being intransigent. But again, if if Biden would do like Eisenhower or Ronald Reagan and pick up the phone and say, I'm the boss and I said that this is the deal, then they would have their say, way. Do it, it or not way. another dime. And that would be it. And um, so I think I think the Democrats probably are not truly on board for the worst that Ben Gavir has in mind, but I, I really doubt that they have the will or the strength to try to stop it. I, I really don't know how far Netanyahu's going to go. I think he's and, all and in. Frankly, it's for his own survival. Yeah. The Americans just don't have the will to make him shut up, to make him quit. Um, and then RFK, I think is just absolute scum. I, I hate him. I think he's just, he's as bad as Joe Biden or any of these people. He's got he's no dignity at all. Compromised sexual and, predator. So I think. And even if not, um, he's just a bad person and a dishonest person. And, you know, in order to justify his position of uh, unconditional, his words, support for Israel. He's just got to lie about the Palestinians, and that's all he does from morning till night is wake up and tell lies about the Palestinians to justify the Israelis slaughtering them. And it's completely despicable and disgusting. And his own foreign policy advisor, Jim Webb Jr., quit over it. Um, so I'm not going to be a part of this, and I'm not going to hear you invoking America against Iraq in order to justify what Israel is doing in Gaza. Because one, we didn't do the Iraqis that way. Damn. And secondly, what we did to the Rockies was horrible. How could you invoke that to justify this? Just forget it. I quit, he said. And um, it, it's just a disgrace. And, and the only 
like redeeming part of it is that it's hilarious, that it's just absolute electoral suicide. What did he think that nothing was going to happen in Israel, Palestine for a year and a half while he's running for president? I think he might be going for the record uh, how many wars the U.S. can lose in one term. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) And we're, you know, I don't I don't know who's got a comparable list before they just completely fell apart all the way. But like, look, as a candidate, imagine how he would be doing right now. If he was great on Israel Palestine and he was running still as a Democrat and was and of course the Democratic Party would be cheating against him and shutting down all the primaries and trying to shut him out but he would have a huge groundswell of support and in the states where they do hold primaries he would have real showings and in the public you just wouldn't be able to ignore him because he is a Kennedy and he does have charisma and all of that stuff but he just told the entire left half of the Democratic Party to go straight to hell and stay there. And they're not going to put up with him. They're not going to support him. And that was what he needed was for the entire, you know, dissident left to rally around him and support him. And he would be absolutely huge right now if he was good on this issue and had stayed in the Democratic Party. So for him, I mean, the fact that he's an independent now, I know so many people who are who were supporters they liked his stance on ukraine and covid and whatever and then he pulled this and he's so gaffy for israel like on a scale of one to nikki haley he's like a nine yeah absolutely out of there yeah he's as bad as the worst of them i mean he went on i think it was rising and claimed that the p has a bounty on the head of every Jew on earth and that the PA will pay any Palestinian to kill any Jew anywhere in the world, which is so freaking preposterous and truly amounts to Kennedy himself putting a price on the head of innocent Jews all around the world so that he can lie and smear and defame the Palestinians and make it sound like they deserve to die. Fuck him, man. You know, he is absolutely as low a degenerate. But he wanted to forgive the alleged Palestinian shooter of his father. He was ready to let Sirhan Sirhan out because he didn't think he did it. I'm like, I know that he knows what happened to his dad and his uncle. And they still got him over a barrel. Killing his dad. He doesn't even think Sirhan did it. Halfway there. But it's like, okay, that's enough that, you know, you think the CIA. Fine. You, it's not what you were told. So we know that you're aware of these things. And you got Rabbi Shmuley, dildo salesman, as your handler. And you're out there calling the, the Palestinians the most pampered, you know, for U.S. state. It's like, <clears throat> excuse me, who gets the most foreign aid of all nations? Seven times as much as the entire continent of Africa every and year. And this guy's a born millionaire saying that, right? This is a guy whose first memory is being carried by a slave on a pillow on horseback like Thomas Jefferson talking about who's the most pampered anyone in the world. Are you kidding me? This guy who drank out of a crystal bottle when he was a baby. At least Jefferson ended the transatlantic slave trade and then people get on his case about well he only freed like seven of them and that's he actually did set slaves free by letting them run away. He couldn't legally set them free because he was in debt and slaves were property. And so if your estate was in debt, you couldn't free your slaves because that it, you that was something you could sell off to pay your debts. So what he did is he let them run. And he made no effort to get them. So Jefferson did have a turnaround just defending him a little bit. But he also grew up in a time period where slavery was just 
normal. That's had it been for thousands of years. So it's pretty forward thinking of him to go the against it at all. Is, the only problem with that is the thousands of words that he put to print about how wrong it all was and then kept doing it anyway for decades later after that forever for the rest of his life. Well, he limited it though. I mean, getting rid of the transatlantic slave trade was huge and he wanted to phase it out, but there wasn't really a way they were so dependent well, look, on it. Jefferson never called his slaves the most pampered people in the history no. of the world. <laughs> he knew that he was, right? He was the most pampered person in the history of yeah, Virginia. Part of why he was in debt is he had like three personal wine cellars, libraries for himself. You know? Yeah, all the stuff that he bought on credit in France when he was the ambassador over there. He brought a ship full of stuff that he could never afford. Anyway, point is, that was Jefferson's first memory, was being carried by a slave on a pillow on horseback. And so I was just making fun of Robert Kennedy, that he is the most pampered person in the history of the world on the lines of a Jefferson, right? Like, I bet you Kennedy knew his nanny's name before his mom and his dad, right? His nanny and his butler. And he wants to talk about the pampered Palestinians. And while, while I'm hearing him say that, on my other window, I got pictures of little children's hands and feet sticking out of the rubble where they've been buried alive. It's every time I see those, it's just so heart wrenching and disgusting. And if I can pull it up, one that bothers me a lot is this where the children or their parents they started writing their names on their limbs in case yeah. they get blown up and their faces or heads are blown off that you'll be able to identify them. Yep. Can you imagine like being a child and like writing your name on your leg or something? Because knowing you've got nowhere to go and at any moment the Israelis can murder you and you're hoping or your family can at least figure out who you were. Yeah. Yeah, being a father and writing your children's names on their limbs like that because you know that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to protect them. Unbelievable. And, it, it and, they, and the those, they're do, doing TikTok dances like, yeah, kill them all. It is. It's, it's evil. It is. It's absolutely evil. It's, it's completely despicable and sick. It really is. And anybody who watches this stuff, Anybody looking at Twitter or TikTok or Instagram or whatever and seeing the pictures out of Gaza, they know what's right. Now, all the pro-Israeli factions can say is, huh, yeah, war is ugly. Huh, yeah, fuck around and find out. Huh, yeah. They got nothing to say except that they're degenerate pieces of shit who, you know, let a foreign power dictate their morality to them as they celebrate the killing of children. And I only wish that any of that bullshit was true about God and Jesus and the devil and St. Peter so that these people would be tortured in hell forever, which is what they deserve. But unfortunately, that's just ancient Hebrew mythology. It's a bunch of bullshit. It might as well have been invented by Benjamin Netanyahu for his excuse to kill these people as much credibility actually, as it has. We define Zionism like this. Zionism, fascism with a mythological rationalization for terrorism and territory. That is the opening to my film, How Terrorists Formed a Nation. But it really oh, like yeah. that. It, it works. Yeah, it doesn't matter which religion it is. Because, like, this is very similar, that attitude to that General Sheridan, General Sherman 
Chivington, Custer, these people that went out. You know, people know about Wounded Knee and Sand Creek a little bit, but I don't think they know the depravity of what went on where they were doing pubic hair scalpings, cutting off people's genitalia for the pubic hair scalp and lopping off breasts. Like all the stuff the Israelis have accused Hamas of doing, cutting off women's breasts and rapes and beheading babies and all that, the U.S. actually did to Native Americans. And they put these things in as like trophies and bars and stuff all over Colorado and stuff that were there until the 1970s. Like, haha, look at this. Look at this skull from so-and-so. Yeah. It, hey, man, I don't know if it's still there. I looked for it and I couldn't find it the last time I was there. But at Mount Bunnell, which is the highest hill west of Austin, Texas, um, in Austin, but just uh, up the Colorado River there from downtown. At least like 10 years ago, there was still a plaque there that said on this spot, a white man threw the last damned red Indian off of this cliff to his death in the year 18, whatever the hell, marking the final humiliation and defeat of those damn Apaches around here and et cetera like that. Or was it command? He might have been a Comanche, even though they weren't from here. They were there at the time. The Comanche but, had defeated the U.S. Army several times, but by 1877, because of six-shot revolvers and smallpox, they were finally run off. The Apache lingered around till like 1905. They had Geronimo sent to not in Central Texas. They didn't. They've been traveling in Arizona by then, but like. Yeah. Texas, yeah, the, Texas lost a little bit of territory to Oklahoma, which it actually the, that whole panhandle was called no man's land up until the 1890s, where no one had it, and they had the beer city there. It's pretty crazy place, pretty crazy history. That's something my brother and I go over. If y'all are interested in that, Dawson and Dawson, we'll go. We go over the whole westward expansion. But my point was this kind of sickness where a human being can up close just murder children. And not just and then dance about it that night isn't unique to the Israelis. It isn't something new. It's 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 an insane level of racism, and I mean that in the real like not racist yeah. like today. That's so overused. Serious yeah. dehumanization of like you're not a real person because you're not of my tribe, cult, whatever. And that's it. Really boils down to this in there. This version of their theology where god's a real estate agent and the, you know someone from brooklyn can just move into someone else's house and say if i didn't do it someone else would i'm just gonna take this yep. is my living room god gave it to me and, and when we pay for it it's just the the thing that's gonna bring it down is elon musk or like the fact that people are for the like regular people the first time able to see this crap going on because you know this happened yeah. in 2014. This happened in 09. This has been yeah. been happening, but this is the first time I've seen, like, even like my mother be like, "Whoa, what's going on in Gaza?" Yeah. Because they're seeing it on Twitter. Well, and because they're saying that yes, that's right. We have to kill all the babies and all the toddlers because that's what the Bible says, and the Bible says they'll just grow up to be our enemies one day. So it's better to just kill them now, which is. Not even medieval, right? But it is ancient barbarianism. That Yahoo right? quoted the book of Samuels. Yeah. Kill yeah, them all, that's right. livestock, I mean, everything. Amalek. Yeah, this is ancient mythology from 3,000 years ago being applied in real time, you know, right now in front of our eyes. And, and I think that there's a real cognitive dissonance there where Americans just project 
the Geneva Conventions and the Declaration of Independence and whatever on to the Israelis, our friends, and just know that, well, they wouldn't be doing anything that they don't have to do, and they wouldn't be going too far for the fun of it or the degeneracy of it or the theft of it all. human shields. Or, you know, they don't hear the remarks about Amalek and we have to kill all their infants too. Those quotes, they make it to the ICJ case, right? They make it to YouTube and Twitter, but they don't make it to the news hour on PBS and they don't make it to the nightly news Why is or that? CNN. Well, you know, it's the American political establishment is completely run through with Zionists and not just Jewish ones, but virtually everyone in polite society right. and is why supposed is that? to automatically side, uh, you know, side with Israel on all of this stuff. And yeah, well, if, you if know, people want to know how it got that way, um, go see my pen tweet tomorrow. Cause we're going to go over how, how Israel got so much undue influence over the U S cool. Sounds good. All right. And there's Syria's Invisible Hand. It's free. It's on the website. It goes over a lot of the things Scott and I said, it, it, including the audio recording that we alluded to from John Kerry. That's in that film. Okay, great. It's a short one. Yep. Syria, Israel's Invisible Hand. Enough already, too, by the way. What's that? All this stuff is in Enough Already. Yeah, it is. It's all in the book. Oh, you can watch the film. All this stuff is in Enough Already and some. And that is one you should get. You should get the book anyway to support Scott Horton. Um, I've got one signed. I, I think it's back on the shelf there. I've read that more than once. I've read Fool's Aaron more than once. I go through, I notice right. new Thanks. things each time. So that's good, man. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I, I, I'm not one of these people that gets books for show, you know, <laughs> but yep, that's, I think I bought that from you in DC. Or okay. Yeah, I think um, that's where I got it. I think it was where the Grant Smith thing. No, that would have been too early. That was in like 14. No, you went to what? I bought a book from you there. No, I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been in, in, in 17 after, no, in 18 then after uh, Fool's Air came out in the summer of 17. Mm -hmm. So that would have been in, in the spring of 18. It must have been. I've been to all the events, so except the first one, which is the one I missed. Uh, I think it's when you first. Those are so great. The, the Grant Smith anti-Israel lobby conferences every year are just fantastic. Grant Smith's a stud, man. He's it, dude. I interviewed him today. By oh, the way. great! Just, Big Israel yeah. is another book on the shelf yeah. back there. People talk about the lobby, the Mersheimer, but it's pretty good. Big Israel is <laughs> the king on that. If you want to know about yeah. Israeli affiliate groups and what's going on, Grant F. Smith, Big Israel. He is he is the foremost expert in the country on the Israel lobby and their entire history. I mean, today we talked about the ADL training the FBI about how um, pro-Palestinian leftists are all pro-Hamas terrorists and this and that. And then he just starts going off and telling the entire history of the ADL messing with the FBI going way back to the 1950s and 60s and whatever and harassing J. Edgar Hoover and just this full court press nice. by the ADL to integrate themselves and ingratiate themselves with the FBI. And how <laughs> From their inception to defend Leo, Leo Frank, who killed Mary Fagan, a child raping yeah. murderer. That's, you know, that the he was a um, Benai Brith chapter president in Georgia. So they just came to his defense, even though he killed little kids and he had, you know, child labor, all that. That's the ADL, the defamation league. I'm going to go listen to that. I'm going to finish the Putin Tucker. And then I'm going to listen to Grant Smith on your show right now. <laughs> no, 
I'm gonna go watch that Putin thing, man. All right. Well, good it good talking to you, man. We always it's hard to say goodbye because we always get stuck on something else. But it's uh it's Scott Horton. What am I gonna do? He's me if I was more mature. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and a little shorter. Yeah, a little bit shorter too. <laughs> Not an MMA guy. That's okay. All right, guys. Here's a lot of green. We'll see you tomorrow. Peace. Thanks, Ryan. Green Mart. Brown producer amplified. Patriotic projectile party pops. Got some up in the brown people making trouble for the empire. Replace them with a charge.